listening to the Wouldn't It Be Cool podcast with Chris Dempsey. Welcome to episode five, Wouldn't It Be Cool podcast. I'm your host, Chris Dempsey, and uh, my apologies for being a little late with this one. Uh, I was figuring out some recording issues and and, uh, equipment issues, but I've got it sorted out. Hopefully I will be bringing these to you at a more regular and quicker pace. Uh, You can find me at Facebook, Wouldn't It Be Cool? Instagram, Wouldn't It Be Cool? And you can email me at Wouldn't It Be Cool podcast at gmail.com. And please, please subscribe um, either through iTunes or whatever app you're using. um, And just type in Wouldn't It Be Cool? I'll pop right up. Um, so this is a part, this is a podcast where I'm hoping to encourage and inspire people, um, to live in alignment with their dreams and their passions, take care of yourself through healthy movement, exercise, and good, healthy, um, ideally plant-based food choices. Um, and hopefully you're picking up on that. I'm doing this through interviewing people Um, that can just take us through their stories of uh, success and failures uh, in hopes that we can sort of learn something about ourselves and kind of, you know, incite us to just follow our dreams and our passions. Um, Today's guest is a great guy, Tom Haynes. Tom's the wandering journalist. Um, He has some amazing stories of traveling through just so many countries, such cool stories, totally interesting stuff. It was a really cool conversation. We talk a lot about, about that. We talk a lot about parenting. Uh, he's got two amazing kids, really cool kids. Um, and we, you know, dabble in cycling a little bit. Um, but it's a cool, just sort of really cool conversation. I think you'll like Tom. And, uh, I think that's it. Just, uh, enjoy the show. Thanks. We are. It's moving. All right. This is the right podcast. Yes. <laughs> thanks for doing this. Right on. Well, thanks for having me. This is a great space. Cool to hang out here. It is a rad space where this is. This is hopefully where I'll be doing. I'd like to set it up where you know I kind of have this thing. Uh, the Zoom attached to microphones mm-hmm. would be cool. Just a little setup. Yeah, yeah, and then just it'll it'll sound a little. I, th- I think it'll sound a little softer and and. Um, and uh, it'll just be nice to kind of have this little home base. It's not too far away. So for like real, real local, it is nice to have to like to come someplace to have a conversation. I think that that is part of it. You know? Yeah, I yeah. do think that's part of it. Um, does it, does this place have a name? Like the room have a name? Have you guys Strawberry seen? Jam? Strawberry Jam? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, that was, it, it's the name of the room slash like the name of kind of the idea, the concept. Right. Like brought to, you, brought to you of, by... The state of mind. Yeah. Into so, which, these, so technically these podcasts are now technically brought to you by Strawberry Jam. Right. Yeah. Powered by Strawberry Jam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the, what was the origin of the name for this place? Strawberry just Jam. literally thinking up a name. Okay. You know, we kind of wanted to. We just, we wanted to name it. It was this. It was this grand idea of, you know, the kids having a, a safe space to to like create and mm-hmm. um, just be together and you know make music, create music, write music. Um, originally, it was art. We wanted to have the place kind of equipped with art supplies. 
and they would just you know kids would have keys and they could just kind of come and go and, and do their thing and and um and so we we wanted to name it mm-hmm. like i said it was having the you know phone basket at the door come in here and it's just kind of dedicated to being present no well when i was sitting here i thought this place has to have a name i mean yeah. it, like I, it feels like a place that yeah. it would have a yeah you can see there is yeah, like that. Oh, there it is. Strawberry Jam. Artwork, yeah. With so, a, is that a violin on the, or a guitar? I think it's a guitar, yeah. Like the guitar, yeah. <laughs> but we had, in that party, I told you about the epic, oh, really? my 50th party, yeah. and, and uh, it was the co- or slash opening night of this the, of this space. And so we had this, like, you know, massive bash, and it was awesome. I talked about it on the, on the Nick episode. Nice. It was, like, it, was, it was an epic party. It was so fun. And, uh, but one of the, one of the concepts was bring art, bring something to hang on our wall. Oh, nice. You know, so not yeah. a, not a ton of people did, but some people no, but did. But is that the, the alligator, is that a crocodile or a, in a... Uh, actually Aiden did that. That's a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah, yeah. So very Aiden, cool. Aiden, on the left, right? And on the, that. and on the right too? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no. on, the on the right, right, it does look different, but it's a dinosaur. Dinosaur, yeah, right on. I'm not sure what it is. Again, I'm having my no glass issues. Yeah. But, uh, Do you have the close or far vision issue? It's, it's, uh, well, now it's all degrading. I've had, technically, I guess I have 2015 vision, and yeah. I've always had no need for glasses at all right. until two years ago. And now it's, it's essentially reading in this, right, right, right. but it's, but it's become a low light issue. So like, Oh, here, it is. Oh. And here, if I, it's, um, uh, I'm not having that yet. You know, but I can see like Chobani, Bonnie, and Yanni. Okay. I can read that. Uh, that <laughs> Good choice. That Excellent choice. Is that someone's art offering? That, well, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was, yeah. That's a hilarious, like YouTube star, Gail, that, uh, Bella is super into. And, her friends were really into, so they did this. Uh, get, they did a Gale collage and hung that up, and then someone brought the Ninja Turtle. Um, did someone bring the painting by the door? Uh, the painting was done here. That was part of the epic party. So okay. one of the one of the first things Nick does when he gets here after maybe two beers is he just takes off all his clothes but his underwear and socks and starts to paint. And and this is a party that has like my daughter who is, I want to say, fourteen. So her friends are like 14. And, there's, and how old is she now? She's, she's gonna, turning 17. Okay, it's a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a couple years ago. So she's, I guess she's maybe 15, right? Yeah, so it's only like a year ago. I turned 50, so I'm 51. Right. So, so she was 15, and, uh, and he just comes in. So it's her friends and my friends. So there's probably 20 of her friends here. And then my, you know, almost equal my friends. And Nick comes in a little crew, and it's you know this the tattoo clad you know carrying a bunch of beers, and then my right. friends in here like playing or her Bella's friends playing ping pong, and uh, and Nick um, just comes in and like hanging out and everything, and then he just decides he's going to get undressed, and so then he oh, I, is he totally tatted? Oh yeah, up? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, is that part of it? Like because it's his body is kind of. Um, I you know actually he I wonder if his his back is not done. And so what they did is they, they painted his back. I have some really awesome pictures. I could show you later, but some funny pictures of the night of, of Bella and her friends just like leaning into Nick's back with paintbrushes and painting all over. Oh, nice. So that piece of wood was in here. My friend Jeremy just randomly brought the piece of wood thinking something cool would happen with it. And it was just leaning on the wall. Is this Jeremy there. Right Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jeremy did that. Oh, sorry. I met Jeremy through you. Right. That's yeah. why I was like, yeah. So my it's just Jeremy. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Not your friend. My friend. Right, okay. So so anyway, so Nick's back was covered in paint, and he just leaned against that piece of wood and made that 
sort of new, not so now it's like a an art installation so we screwed it to the wall nice man yeah. nice. it was cool it was really fun That oh that's his painted back that is his painted back pressed and like rubbed around and that's yeah that's performance art exactly yeah. because it almost looks like the front of a torso like the see in the middle there it almost looks like abs yeah yeah, yeah. like a oh, rib like a rib yeah, cage yeah, yeah. yeah. pectoralis yeah. major above and I yeah. actually I also see a mask do you see the face see the eyes in that same spot oh yeah, yeah totally and, yeah. A, and a big headdress yeah, and a big like yeah, yeah. you know beard dress like a <laughs> buffalo ceremonial mask yeah yeah yeah. like an old yeah can you see like almost horns yeah. coming off the yeah. side yeah yes if yeah, we yeah, stare yeah. about that thing long enough we could just you're right you can see a lot of stuff and then once once the once the hallucinogens kick in more really we're gonna <laughs> right it'll be it'll be so the other question is is that a piano yes. keyboard and yes. essentially mm-hmm. um what do you call them the mallets of a piano the hammers hammers the hammers that's the hammers yeah. right the hammers yeah did you guys just hang out a piano? Uh, no, so that's another tragic story. Oh, it was a piano yeah. at one point. It was there was a baby grand piano in here that I got on Craigslist for free. Baby grand pianos and big. Let that go as a warning to everyone. Go. Do oh, you your due diligence. Yeah. Have well, but you got it for free. Yeah, but no, I didn't because it cost three hundred dollars to get it here yeah. and up in here. Right, and, right, right. I, I, and to, so to get it out of here, that's left. And I actually did keep the. Um, I kept the legs of it, and I'm going to make a table. Yeah. So I'm going to make this like really cool living room table that's just kind of – it'll look sort of like this, like a big thick slab of dark wood that I'll yeah. cut in the shape of a piano yeah. and put the original – like the piano legs that's on it. That's cool. And they're on wheels. And you could have Billy Joel over for dinner. <laughs> and he could sit there. <laughs> He'll sit at the kids' table. He could be like, <laughs> sing me a song. I'm the piano kid I'm over the here. Kid. All right. Yeah. Stuck in the corner. Billy Joel. All right. So cool. Yeah. So that's the story of the space. And uh, the last question about this: yes. What river is it right out back there? Is that the Bellamy, or is that the no? That's uh, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but yeah. it's a beautiful uh, for those of you who can't see it. Yes, <clears throat> it's a beautiful uh, New England river with like the little rapid section yep. or the mill building. You yeah, can yeah. see where exactly. Back, exactly back in the day they were like this was the working mill. And that we're going to build heel here, and this is where it's the river that got polluted by this mill. And, right, totally. Yeah, yeah well, I'll, I'll, I'll forget. It must be. I think it must be the Bellamy. Or is it Piscataqua? Really, maybe I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I should know. Mm. I think Bellamy might be right though. It feels although Bellamy is so different. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to Google it because this is a this nope. is a this is a, a, a phone free space, right on. Only recording devices allowed and and musical instruments. So anyway, um, I wanted to um, first um, I want to talk about your kids first. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Because as as fitting into the uh, the wouldn't it be cool paradigm. You are, uh, you're a great dad. And you've got some oh, crazy, thanks. super cool kids. I do have crazy, super cool kids. Yeah. I don't know if I'm a great dad, but the, yeah. but the kids no, are no, crazy, no. super cool. The kids are a product of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think my, my observation is, um, is that you, uh, you're real good at let, letting your kids find their way. You know, and, and I see Julie, you know, same thing. I see mm-hmm. you guys, um, uh, I see you being really like good guidance and real like they're safe mm-hmm. and they're responsible and they get their shit done um but they're given tons and tons of room 
and yeah. freedom to feel comfortable in their own skin and to feel comfortable um, pursuing whatever it is they want to pursue, mm-hmm. you know? And it's just nurtured a couple like, like really confident, really polite, really engaging, really mm. interesting. Like they're both mm. so interesting. Mm. You know? It's good to hear. Yeah, no, it's yeah. fun to hear that. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and I, I agree with you. I mean, it's fun yeah. to be with them. Um, it's funny. I was once was uh, walking down the street on, on campus at UNH, and there was a guy. He's probably twenty, walking up the street, and he had his shoulders back, and and he's walking along, kind of like you know, you see these people. They're kind of in their own world in a good way, just kind of walking yeah, along. Yeah. And he had this, but he looked sort of like he wouldn't necessarily project it, like like project a message out to the world or whatever, you know. But he had this T-shirt on, and said, "Don't grow up. It's a trap." and and i thought man what an awesome t-shirt but i think to your point about the kids i think you know i'm 48 and and i don't know how how you feel but uh you know i feel like we as adults have kind of gotten a a lot of things wrong and kids you know certainly have the benefit of being new and fresh and unimprinted with all this stuff and so i think that's all I have tried to do, and I know, I think Julie too, is like to almost create a buffer in a way and celebrate whatever is with them and, and, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and trying, because I think that, you know, you, you were talking earlier about children and the next generation and, you know, I do think we're at a point, well, I'm sure throughout history, it's always been good to learn from the young, but I just feel like it's just trying to support that because I think that they, um. I don't know. Kids seem to have it figured out a little more. Yeah. Just the simplicity, and I don't mean this in a simple way, but the purity of a passion or mm. the purity of a focus and or a motivation, and excitement, and excitement. Yeah. And they happily, the world hasn't forced things on that enough yet. Right. That they might say in the moment, "Oh, I can't do that right now. I can't do that right now." I yeah. can And it's not about like indulging overindulging them and oh, saying, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. no i mean as you know it's it's like you definitely want to give them structure and responsibility in fact my son and i just today where there was an incident you know where we're talking yeah. about dude if you want to have this responsibility this privilege you know this responsibility that comes with that and you know that it's all connected but um but it is about i think kind of trying to make the room to celebrate and support so that they can carry as much of their own momentum yeah. into, yeah, yeah, into yeah, yeah, adulthood. Yeah, that's a great way. I said, because, that's actually a cool way of putting it. Because I think if, if, if you don't go into adulthood with momentum, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, this is, I guess, the nature of this conversation. But I'm just kind of thinking this out as we go. But I think if you don't go into adulthood with momentum in this world we live in right oh, now, yeah, you be... just fall into all these patterns and structures yeah. and that are external. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, it's you're right. Classic. It is all external. It's, it's all it, like, it's all suppressing you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, oh, I got to pay the bills and I can't, you know, I got to, I, I have to, uh, um, give in to the, to pressures of something that I, I don't want that, you know, like pressures, like, what are you right. going to do? Like all right. that stuff. And if you get, if you let a kid just enjoy their childhood and be a child and, and, and it, just like enjoy all the stuff you were talking about, all right. that, the innocence, if you will. And, uh, and then I think that's a really good way of putting it. Just like, and use that momentum and just take that. That's exactly right. That they take can feel confident. Moment. And again, not in a competitive way or anything, but just in a deep oh, yeah. kind of soul way yeah. that they can feel confident in who they are. Yeah. Well, part, well, part of being comfortable in your own skin is it's an interesting, you know, it, it's an interesting, uh, 
thing to think about in that in that light because being comfortable in your own skin oftentimes I'm actually I'm actually working on writing a meme it yeah, sounds yeah. like a weird thing to say but, no I mean, come on it's 2016 exactly yeah, I'm an author of memes right, right. and uh, <laughs> and but it's it an does, author what do you write yeah, memes memes yeah I write yeah. eight words nice and, right. uh, short but, form yeah <laughs> micro form, micro form. Um, but it's it, it has to do with comfort in your own skin it has to do with you know being coming off as as overconfident or coming off as arrogant when you're really just comfortable in your own skin and you're really mm-hmm. comfortable with who you are and where you are and what you are mm-hmm. and sometimes people that that's not familiar to really like can push you back and mm-hmm. can and can be putting off-putting uh, it can be off-putting to them, so it, it comes back to you from them as as um, tension. Really, it's mm-hmm. like tension in a way. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, th- I'm thinking specifically, like, mostly like younger people, like and specifically even females, because there's a lot of uh, um, young girl. Like my daughter is a, is a teen teenage girl, mm-hmm. so you know there's a lot of drama in that world. A lot, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of there's a lot of competition, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. Yeah. And, and and Bella is someone who's just comfortable in her own skin, right? You know, and she gets these weird, you know, she gets sort of like strange reactions sometimes. Um, and and I feel like I want to say you're just misunderstood, mm-hmm. you know, and you're just mm-hmm. you're. And I and I I, I I dealt with sometimes too. I felt people misunderstood me a lot because they're like, I think that maybe they, I don't, no one even said it to me. I think I, I might have been projecting, but no, but the world in a lot of ways when it's like, no, I'm just I'm just comfortable, like. Yeah. No, and it is true, particularly in those de- <clears throat> those developing stages of middle school, high school, whatever. But even for us as adults, it's like it's a dog eat dog world, you yeah. know. And the world, in a lot of ways, tries to uh, take people, take individu- individuality, or do you yeah. know what I mean? Or, yeah. or just comfort of individuality is often not something that is inherently celebrated. Yeah, but which is crazy. in our cultural system. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And, yeah. and but that's a great and, thing what you're doing as a parent. You yeah, are right. Celebrating it's your kids trying as individuals. To give that. Like the two of them are they're not to, actually they're not totally very different, but they're, they're different. But they're different. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, they're. And I'll tell you one thing in in our case that was sort of maybe happenstance, I don't know. So I grew up in one house for 18 years, right? I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, same house. And that had a lot of upside, right? Yeah, I, I yeah. knew where home was, yeah. stability. Super comfortable. I mean, I like you know, Andy Ryan, the first friend I remember inviting over to my house in kindergarten. Like we went through right. 12 years of right, school right. together. I had the same, same you know, time. Exactly. Yeah. And because of a lot of different reasons, we moved around a lot. Partly is because Julie and I are just wanderers. And partly because in, in the journalism world, it was this crazy time. But so Luca started school. In and he, Luca's 14. 14 now. now. 13, soon to be 14. 13. All right. Started each Started okay. Each grade in a different state okay. in first, second, third, and fourth grade. Wow. He's, so, uh, first grade was in Massachusetts. Second grade was in Ohio. Third grade was in Texas. Fourth grade was in New Hampshire. And how and how far apart are the kids? They're two two, years, two and a half right? years apart. So Colette so effectively Colette started. A couple of she had like a two years of preschool or whatever. Yeah. Or no kinder. Yeah, she had preschool, kindergarten, first, and second. Right. Now that could be. A recipe for like memoirs from kids who hate their parents, right? Like they're like they're gonna be like my freaking mom and dad. I've never had a relationship ever. I have attachment issues. I can't. I don't. You know, I have to like carry my toothbrush with you, me, because I'm not sure it's gonna be there when I go back. So it's no, but uh, that could be like the worst case scenario. The best case scenario seems, and this is why I say it's kind of happenstance or luck or Mm. whatever. In our case, 
the best case scenario is they, and I mean this like in a in a sort of serious way, they were like cats that you could drop them upside down and they would land on their feet yeah. socially in yeah. the sense, and not in a bewildered kind of going to claw your eyes that way, but like they would. Um, First of all, actually, it was really cool as a family. I think it made our family nucleus more central to their mm-hmm. existence because mm-hmm. we were the constant, right? right? right, right. Yep. So that we were the ones who were moving from place Which is to the place. point I wanted to make, actually, yeah. is that you guys, that's why they're so able to be that cat you're describing because right. you guys are so there. We were You're there. not distracted by your moves. You're present. For yeah, them. no, we were very present. Yeah. And, and no, absolutely. And, and I think... Huge. That is huge. And I, I mean, I look at them as like friends, you know, right, I'm like, right. want to hang out with them. Right, and they're right. kind of like, dad, you know, but, but, <laughs> at the, but no, but at the same time, but the, the other thing is, you know, they would go into a, 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 I didn't really come to appreciate this till later, but like Luca, so first grade, you know, goes in, he makes a bunch of friends in the playgrounds and whatever. Boom. Off to a completely different world. Walks in the door in second grade. He's a new kid. Yeah. Has to sort out his world. Right. Figures it out and happily. I mean, I think one reason why we kept doing it was we knew that that suited their personalities. Right, yeah, but they could. But they could. But but I think so. Oh, this is one of the many. So that either through their experience or their natural hardwiring or whatever, this I think is the key that we all can take a lesson from: is that they size up a situation and they engage with it. Mm-hmm. You know, they would mm-hmm. look at a room full of people and they'd say, "Who are these people?" Do I like this one? Do right. I? Who do I like? Right. What, what do I have in common with these people? Yeah. Uh, we were in a small town in Texas for a, a good almost two years at that time. Very intergenerational. So, like, the, one reason why I know, like, you were playing shooting hoops with me the other day, right? Yeah. And they treat you like yeah, a yeah, friend, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Partly, you know, because at these really formative years, they were hanging out. Probably sounds like this scene here in this room uh, at a backyard barbecue, and they might be talking to a seven-year-old on one side of them and a sixty-four-year-old on the other right. side, and they would just, you know, they, they would just engage with that. Yeah. And I think that is a thing that, and you know. super genuine. Super genuine. So genuine. And, and just, they'll tell you what they think. And uh, and happily, I guess my point is like, uh, happily the world treats them that way too. Yeah. And, you know, there's a nice interest. But I, I do think that we as adults get like dragged into compartmentalization and roles uh, and, and blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, who, I mean, you know, you're driving down the road and you get your windows up and you're just bam, 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 you know, and. I think of how many people if I just slowed down and asked them like so you know where are you from what makes you happy yeah. whatever you being incredible connections yeah, yeah. but uh, but we don't even do I that I we actually don't. I had an experience like that the other day um, at lunch in downtown and it was and one part of it was it was such a big event because it's exactly what you were describing. The two and of this us. Is downtown Durham, this is downtown Durham. You you might know her, but I just don't know her last name. Her name's Pam, and now I, she's gonna start listening to podcasts, and now she knows she's already on the podcast. Okay, um, yeah. She, she's in the um, outdoor education, and I, I don't think I know. Yeah, her, I don't but... think you do because I think I mentioned that I was uh, podcasting you coming okay. up because I, I thought she might know you because she's also at the university. But a quick aside: the you know the guy who was just hit on the bike is on the outdoor education. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Sorry, she, but I'm she saying, lives, so I'm just saying, like, I'm probably one degree away. Exactly. From, yeah. Right, she, yeah. So, um, but it was it was this, you know, 
I, we were just barely acquaintances because we did a Bikram yoga class together. Oh, nice. And, and the I was... In, the one in Durham? Yeah, and the one in Durham. So I happened to be wearing like... Yeah. I don't want to get off topic, but yeah, it's the hot one. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was wearing like, you know, paint-covered Carhartts. And right. so she just made some kind of comment like, oh, you look like me. You know, like I'm right. always dressed like that too. And just like a quick little friendly, like, all right. Yeah. So then I see her walking down the street at, at lunch and the two of us kind of like looked at each other and it was one of these like, yeah, I know you, I know you. So then she was about to walk by and I was just sitting on a bench like eating a Polly's pocket. Right, right. And and I kind of we we did that. We both knew what we were doing. And then thankfully she stopped, turned around and was like, "Where do I know you?" right? It's and then she and then she started remembering as she was saying it. She ended up sitting there for probably like 25 minutes. Sitting she sat down on the bench. We had the most like pleasant, fun, engaging, really like, you know, high energy sparked conversation and it was and it was just what you're saying it's one of those like we were so conditioned like i would have just like looked right back down at my phone to avoid that almost intuitively nowadays like it's almost intuitive now to just glance away and disengage right. well and, and, and think about the good part of being a kid our memories of being a kid right and there was like tough stuff about socialization when you're a kid but the really good part of being a kid was you just talk to people yeah, yeah. you would meet somebody in the playground you would you know what I mean you just yeah. to, to, to peers I mean to yeah. other kids yeah. and that kind of conversation you're describing sounds like a conversation two kids would have right yeah, like yeah. hey weren't you the one yeah, at yeah, the yeah. you know the Bikram yoga in this case but like you know who hit the double and kick or in kickball and blah 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 and <laughs> And then you just talk for 20 minutes and then yeah. you move on. But that's yeah. a profound. And we're like friends now. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, right. And, I mean, it's we. Well, this is maybe I don't know if we want to go off this soon, but because totally just a new topic. But the acquisition of fr- of new friends, the older we get, mm. I think there's something. I don't know. I'm sure some sociologist, psychologist, whatever has is, done some, studying this. some deep study of yeah. this. But. You know, in childhood, in our early years, we just literally acquire and accumulate new friends. And that just slows over time as you yeah. get older. Oh, yeah, in this, yeah, yeah. Partly for good reason. Yeah. You know, you begin to have your own family or, you know, you, you, job. you job and, and you're busy. And you've acquired friends when you were younger that we still have. I mm-hmm. still talk to my to three good friends from, from elementary and middle school and, yeah. and whatever. But... So you don't kind of quote need them as much, but but I just think like say as like as like a skill set as a tool, it just dulls and it yeah. gets it gets weaker, and yeah. we don't um, we don't. I mean, and again, there's exceptions. I, I can think of people who do this, but we don't yeah. approach the world as like I'm going to make a new friend. Yeah, <laughs> How yeah, often yeah. you walk down the street right. thinking that today? Well, then, and, and it's also weird advice to give somebody. Have you ever had that person in your life where where you want you actually find yourself giving the advice? Well, you just need to make some friends. Make some friends. You just, just need to go just, make some friends. Just go make some friends. It'll be fun. No, it'll be like super weird and awkward. It'll be super weird and awkward. And, and as adults who <laughs> make friends, it's like, well, so how would I do that? Well, you should join a club right. that, that, yeah, or yeah, a group yeah. that has yeah. a common interest. Exactly. Whereas when you're eight or 10, and that is the, coming back to my kids growing up. I mean, I think that was the one reason why I didn't, firstly, far, first of all, because they seem to be thriving in the experience. But second of all, when like Luca was marching into third grade, a new classroom in a new state, one reason why I didn't feel like I was being, you know, sort of uh, 
Yeah, negligent. Negligent was because I, I knew that's that's the hard wiring at that age. Yeah. The kids accept each other, yeah. and they come home, and the first day he was like, "Oh yeah, it's nice boy," you know. Miguel, he had these two really good friends, Miguel Barunda and Miguel Antiveros in Texas, and uh, you know, I would start to hear about. Miguel and one Miguel, you know, and then it became clear that they were better friends and have them over and go over to their house mm-hmm. and blah blah blah. And within like, it's like it's like it's like a time lapse, you know. Within like two weeks, all of a sudden, these kids have been f- friends forever, yeah. you know. And so, anyway, it, it's uh, it's something that that it would be cool if we could replicate that as adults somehow. Yeah, just uh, you know, embrace it, just let mm-hmm. it happen. That's what mm-hmm. it felt like with this with this woman with Pam. It was just like we just both like let it happen and just kind of embrace this moment. Like she kind of had to go, you know. Right. She eventually sort of had to go, and you, you right, know, right, right, just right. Like, and I did too. I'd be like. Go back to work. So it was just. It Isn't was, that refreshing, though, as adults, yeah. when when, you, when people break out of roles or whatever, and you're just like, "Hey, that's that's cool." Yeah, or just uh, or or um, break out of the role, or just or ignore the norm. You know, the ignore norm. the the social uh, acceptance or lack thereof. I've had a couple good uh, airplane conversations like that in the last year, where yeah, you know, typically like anybody, I get on the airplane and I'm partly. Part open, part defensive, yeah, because same. you you you, you want to be open to meeting somebody interesting, but you also don't want to be a victim. Yeah. You got, you got, exactly, you have a 50-50 chance. 50-50 yeah. chance, you know. And so and so, I will often err on the side of missing a chance to meet somebody nice yeah. by just kind of being, "Hi, how are you doing?" Or open my magazine. Yeah. But I had two just flying out. I remember flying out. I had to connect through Denver. Uh, and then the other one was flying back to my hometown of Pittsburgh, a woman who works for Walgreens and was in Rhode Island. And we both flew out of, I think it was Boston to Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. So we were both, I don't know, Philadelphia to Pittsburgh flight. And uh, just ended up being this cool woman who lived in Emsworth, which is the next town over that I grew up in, on the river mm. in Pittsburgh. And we're flying to Pittsburgh, looking out the window, talking about streets and neighborhoods. And mm. I'm just like, I was so happy that, and neither one, you know, just like, just it was just a nice human conversation. Yeah. I, actually, this actually, it's, I'm surprised. I'm just thinking of this right now. It, it happened to me the other night. I went out um, to dinner, and then we had some friends out at a bar, seeing some music. So we were just going to go say hi. And one of the person people that were, was there, her, his parents were there. And so, just by the the nature of the way we were all positioned, I was just talking to his dad. And he and I, it was, it was just that same thing. Like he and I just hit it yeah. off. Like we just hit it off and we were just like talking so freely and easily and, and had a lot of the same, you know, uh, kind of opinions, I guess, you know, about right, stuff right. and about life yeah, and common ground. Yeah. About, and yeah. it was just like flowing and flowing and flowing. And then, and then when he left to go to the bathroom, I turned around and sort of like re-engaged with the rest of the crowd and everyone immediately was, was saying like, Oh, are you glad he's gone? Or like. You know, like right. like thinking like that I he was, monopolized your time, right? Yeah, or, and, the, or, and that I and that I was feeling like I was trapped and in right, prison, right. and I was like, no, like, that was cool guy. I was like, no way, I was totally like loving that conversation. He's so cool, like that was really interesting, and and uh, yeah, it was. It, so that kind of speaks to like that norm stuff. Everyone's just like, oh my god, that must have been torture. No, it was a really fun, engaging conversation with someone I've never like met. So can I jump on a tangent that is somewhat related to this? So I'm thinking of it as like picture watching television now today with uh, remote controls. It's like, I don't watch much TV, but I do have a remote 
And if I like, we have our TV in our house is down in the far corner, so I have to actively like go down. Yeah. Like one or two nights a week, I'll go down. There will be the NBA Finals where I don't really watch sports. But I'm like, okay, I'll watch a game and see this stuff. <laughs> the commercial comes on. I'm like, turn the channel. There's always like, what are you missing, right? And I think that we conversationally and even personally, whatever, like no one wants to commit to the deep conversation in that social setting. About this, that's me. Excuse me. <clears throat> oh, Excuse me. Words. I think the audio will pick that up. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I, I just said it's all con- I, 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 again. If there's some sociologist doing some big study, I bet you there is a correlation to that reaction from your friends mm. that, like, ooh, you were trapped in that conversation. It, I think is heightened because we live in a world now. Well, we can always change. We can right. always move. Right. We can always, if something, if we're at a stoplight and we're bored with being at the stoplight, right. we pull out our cell phone and we right. look at our phone. Yeah. If we're watching TV and the dialogue gets bad or a commercial comes out, we can go to something else. If we're, you know, right. I mean, we can just always flee. We yeah. can always yeah. go somewhere else. And so to see someone engaged with like yeah. no option to flee in their eyes there, yeah. that's like a problem. Yeah, I don't know. I'll yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. But I think it's that, scary. It's scary, yeah. you know, it's or or it's or it's like uncomfortable. You're missing the opportunity to like look for something else. Right. You know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Do you realize you just spent like six minutes focusing on one thing? <laughs> right, right, right. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, so the kids, I think, are um, yeah, that's great. I'm, I mean, I, I'm glad that uh, you know. It's great to hear that perspective. And, yeah, uh, really cool. Super cool kids. You I know, enjoy it, them a lot. That's I, great. Like you said, I was playing basketball with them. Like, I got out of work. I was the only one there. Right, Colette, right. Colette rolls up. I was like, are the kids here? And I was like, no, they're not here. And, and she just... And so I, my, I thought she was just going to sort of turn around and leave. So she just continues to pull up, gets off her bike, takes her helmet off, you know, leans the bike up against. And, and I just... I kind of, like, knew what was coming, you know. So right. I grabbed the basketball right, right, and right. I just sort of passed it to her. And so right, right. that just turns into the two of us just shooting, you know, shooting around. Yeah. Like, we were there for half an hour. Yeah. Like 30 minutes, just hanging out, shooting hoops. Right. And, uh, and eventually uh, Luca showed up and uh, he joined us for a little while. And then, like, he left. And then Colette got drawn away. And then I was there by myself. <laughs> Where did everybody go? <laughs> hey. it was really funny. I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to drive away now. Right. Since I can drive. I do think if I had uh, one parenting tip, I mean, I don't know if I had, someone said me, what's one piece of advice, like for the long haul mm. with your kids up till now, right? I have no idea. I haven't, I haven't hit the yeah, teen yeah, years. Yeah. So, like, you know, I'm not purporting to have any answers. But I said, play with your kids. And I think you did too, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. as they were growing up. And, you know, and it's not just like, okay, this is my five minutes where I'm going to go out and throw the baseball yeah, 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 in the front yeah. yard. But, like, literally see your kids as people that you do things with. Yeah. And I think that is, if there's one big break, you know, yeah. break. Well, you, you, already, you already said, like, I have, I have a few things there too. And one of them, one of them is being their friend. And that's right. like, a, like, you said it. And, right. and I have said it before as it's one of my pet peeves about parents that say the complete opposite. I'm sure you've heard it. Right. I am not my kid's friend. Right, right. I, if they're mad at me, I'm doing my job right. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. And I just do not buy into that. I, I don't, don't buy into it. Because, it because my other thing is trust. So my yeah. one sort of tip is develop a level of trust with your kids where they tr- – where all said and done, they trust your motivation. 
Mm-hmm. So if your kids trust what your motivation is, then they're going to come to you. Because, right. And you're and you're going to be able to impart wisdom. You're going right. to be able to te- you know in quotes tell them what to do because they trust your motivation. You're not right. just they may telling not, them what to they do. They may not know what your reaction will be. Yeah. But they know that they can trust your reaction because your motivation right. is going to be exactly. A and they can way. they can right. trust your reaction. They, and they can trust what the reaction is. Right. And they can and and right. they're, and if you and say they're more open to learn from it. Right. If right. they trust your motivation and they trust sort of and you and then back to friends, if you're friends and they're gonna know who you are. So if they know who you are, what you've been through, and they trust your motivations, then you're in a really, really good position to teach them things right. and have them actually learn from you because they know. Like my kids right. know, been there, done that. Like my, believe me, my kids are not doing anything that I didn't do right. to say the least. Right, right, right? right. So, and they know that they know where I've been, they know what I've done. And so, and they trust my motive. They know that I am only in it for them. And, and I have, and I have no ego attached to it. I have no ego that says I'm right because I'm an adult and you're a kid and you're just going to take that. It's because I said so like that doesn't exist in my world. Mm-hmm. And, and I've found that I get tremendous like you know, success in my parenting out of that, mm-hmm. um, and I can and and it's and it's a lot of comfort too. Especially so we get into the teen years, it's a lot of comfort. So I've got a daughter who's now driving and driving kids around and getting into cars that other people are driving. So I, I have a, I have I don't obviously I'm not in complete comfort because I can't no, trust everything and, and I can't control, can't control everything control, exactly. Right. So, but I can at least I can say, look, you know, you know, like. No, don't get into the car. Right. You can call me. Don't be dumb. That's a huge deal to be able to say. And I just had this guy. My son's a little younger, not there yet. But no. I, but he's a year away from being probably at a party where someone kids oh. are driving, right? I mean, oh, he, kids are driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah, could be yeah. there now already. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I'm saying, but but my point is, as a parent and as a kid, to be able to say and believe and know that like we can talk about it like give me a call like like first of all i understand what's going on in your world yeah you know like and be like give me like you you know you got to take care of yourself and give me a call and and uh if you the alternative being no i gotta sort this out without my parents finding out right and that becomes very scary yeah because then it's up to the kid to sort of say Uh, I got to take risks to sort this out. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's what, and, and again, not that not that every kid won't take risks, but and every kid should take risks or whatever in certain ways. But you just want them not to make the big risks, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I love it. I love parenting. I love the kids. It keeps getting more and more fun. Yeah, and people, exactly. I, I may regret this or, or have a different opinion in a couple of years, but no, people no. are like, oh, the teenage years. I'm just like, this is a blast, man. Yeah, Keep yeah. it coming. Yeah, same here. And I had the same thing. And I and I, I had that. I had such a deep, honest, open, trusting relationship with my kids when they were younger mm-hmm. that I got that same, like, oh, just wait, just wait. I'm like, no, I'm like, I just know. I've right. never had teenagers at that point. But I just, I was like, no, it's not. I'm telling you, I, right. I, I have a different, I have a, I, not different than every, you know, obviously people have similar, similar relationships with their kids than I do, but, um, I was so confident and comfortable in our relationships that I was like, no, it's all, it's all good. We have, you know, I mean, we, just to blow up the sort of frame of reference of the conversation, it's like, we, 
like we're here as human beings for like blips in right. eternity. Yeah. And it really does in the end come down to not what did you produce or what did you do or blah, 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 blah. Right. It's just literally like about what were the quality of the relationships? What did those yeah. give you? What did they give other people? Yeah, exactly. And the parent-child one is perhaps most central, yeah. right? So yeah. it's like if you've got that... If that can somehow be maneuvered in a way that is open and pure and, and good, then, you, you know, that's, that's a huge thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Thing. And you've done your duty, you know, like I think we both yeah. feel and, that way. And it'll come back. I don't know about you, but it also <clears throat> makes me... So, you know, you get generations, right? And the the, the kind of sort of construct is that the parents have it all figured out and they're able to, mm. But a 48-year-old guy, I've got my fears and concerns and oh, insecurities yeah. in the world that I'm cruising through. Yeah. And I know that my life is more manageable and enjoyable because of the strength of my relationship with my two little kids right. than not. You know, I think like literally, <laughs> like on a deep psychic level... Um, I'm connected to them, yeah, yeah. and they're kind of like quote unquote behind me, yeah. and and I don't mean like that as a legacy, but I mean as like as a if I need some help at some point, yeah, yeah, they're yeah, going to yeah. help me out, yeah, you know. Yeah. But I'm like when someone has to change my diaper, you know. I mean, but seriously, <laughs> like yeah. uh, I know. you know, it gives you a root, you're rooted a little bit, and uh, so anyway, I love it. That's what I say about that. Good saying. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I did want to talk about riding a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Like you're an avid cyclist with your son. Yes. Uh, rediscovered that passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You rediscovered it? Is that what you said? Yeah, because I rode when I was younger. But, but no, actually. I, I mean, I, I rode when I... I knew that. So, I'm 48 now. And I just for reference, I... I, I my first bike ride, I remember I was 29, my first road ride, like, like clip in yeah, yeah. on a road bike yeah. and not just like some mountain bike that you jump on and pedal mm-hmm. right on was with a friend in Seattle. I was, a, I was out there, I was working as a journalist for five years in the nineties and this guy was an avid cyclist and he was, and I had gotten really into running, mm-hmm. not a bunch of marathons oh, yeah, or whatever. I didn't know that. I didn't. It was sort of like a late bloomer in terms of my own, my own interest and motivation for that kind of stuff, you yeah. know, but, but did kind of really get into it in a fun way. And, um, and so he's like, you know, if you like to run, if you like the challenge of like, you're going to love riding. Yeah. Right. And I remember we rode in, uh, Seattle is kind of a city ride. I mean, around the lake and whatever. We're climbing back up. There's a big, steep hill up on the Queen Anne. And this guy, Dave Vanderhoff, is, you know, just a very skilled and fit mm. guy. Mm-hmm. I'm 28 years old at the time or right. something. And <laughs> hammers up this hill. And I remember just totally anaerobic. I'm just, <gasps> you know, going up the hill. But I got the bug on yeah. that ride, you know, going around the lake. And so... About a year later, um, this is the other thing. I was as a journalist. I was living. I lived in Europe for two years uh, when I was still single and and not kids and whatever. And met a guy from Canada, Blair, who's still a good friend, who had been a mountain bike racer and then a duathlete, cyclist, runner. Mm-hmm. And I was living in Europe. He says, "I'm going riding this weekend." I was like, "Riding? Ah, you know." So I borrowed a couple, borrowed friends' bikes for a while, and then I bought a bike and spent two years there riding and riding Austria and France. And, you know, mm. it's like little, I mean, it's like beautiful. 
did that when I came back and always did it when, I, when the kids were younger and stuff. But then I kind of gotten out of it for four or five years. And I always did it just, you know, as a, as a, just as a personal thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, yes, two years ago, my son watched the Tour de France. And I might have been the one who turned on the channel or something. <laughs> but but I didn't, you know, I wasn't like, I was not like Johnny Racer, yeah. you know, who was like, my boy is going to follow this. And, uh, and I think it really spoke to him on two levels. One is, uh, you know, he's, he was playing a lot of soccer. I mean, he was 11 or something. But, you know, he's a very physical kid. And so clearly the physical challenge this this idea of wow um these people kind of just going to a limit right, right. pushing themselves and i mean it, can there be any more visual let ride your bike up that mountain right i mean it's just it, 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 climb a mountain mm-hmm. right but the tactics and the strategy and this kind of intellectual component to cycling, and even as you well know, like in the teamworks of a teamwork of a yeah. race, a lot of people think, "Oh, cycling's boring." You turn on the TV, and there's 150 people there, all in these different colored outfits, and right, they're right, right. kind of in one big pack with yeah, you know yeah, a beehive. A beehive, but but then you're like, "Oh wait!" But then there's the queen bee, and there's the worker right. bees, and everybody's doing a job. And so anyway, like you know, you're not going to win, but you're trying to get into it. Yeah. People are like, "No, oh, there are professional it's cyclists who spend their whole yeah. whole career and don't win." Yeah. Yeah. You know, but they, they're on winning teams, you know. So anyway, just to say that, you know, he came, he after watching Tour de France, he's like, Dad, I want to get a road bike. And I was like, oh, any parent who's ever like heard of like that, that first burst of a passion, you're like, oh, come on. Well, why don't you ride your mountain bike around a little bit? And they he had this little 24-inch Jameis, you know, we got department store kind of, you know, it was a nice little bike, but it was, you know, limited and... uh so I kind of for a few weeks keep riding that, keep riding that, and then, but he kept coming back. I'm like, I really want to get a road bike. I really want to get a road bike. And my dad, I remember in seventh grade, I needed, a, I, I wanted a bike, and I was mowing lawns. And my dad, and I remember I had the green Schwinn ten speed <laughs> shifters on the tube yeah, and yeah. everything. And uh, it was sold. At, oh my god, I can't remember. That. It was in Westview. Uh, ah, the bike shop. Oh my god, I can't remember it. But. Uh, he said, I'll, it was a $200 bike, maybe $195. It was a $200 bike. And this, is, this would have been in like 1980. And uh, he said, I, I will, which was, you know, untouchable amount of money for a, seven, a sixth or seventh grade. <laughs> but I mowed lawns and I caddied nice. and stuff. And he said, I will split it with you 50-50, you know. And so flash forward to 2016 and, uh, or 2014 or whatever, we went up to Dover Cyclery and they carried a Fuji road bike with 24-inch tires and I think it was three ninety five, so it's four hundred dollars. So it's affordable, you know. It's like their yeah. their get them started bike. Yeah. And he had some birthday money, and he babysat, and he you know kind of like had pulled up a respectable amount. It wasn't quite two hundred dollars, but yeah, it was yeah. like a good faith effort. And yeah. he was willing to go all in, like uh, like whatever penny he had. Yeah. He was said, "I'll give this for this bike." <laughs> so I got that, and he started riding. It's uh, two years later, and he's ridden six thousand miles, and he's racing. Yeah, he's category yeah. four, and he's just you know. Yeah. He's and, a he, hammer. and he's it's crazy yeah it's yeah. crazy to I me mean, it's a hammer he's a hammer it's like to to give the audience a frame of reference yeah. like the kid is what four foot seven yeah no he's a little taller now he's four eleven but yeah he's a small kid he's picture, a little picture kid. the small kid yeah yeah so four eleven and eight, slight, eight, 86 pounds his legs aren't even like 
His calves are getting pretty yeah, but developed. You should ride but, with him now. His, oh, his thighs are getting. Well, I saw him tonight yeah. in his in his bike shorts, and and they were and his bike shorts were like baggy down around his <laughs> quads. But he, um, but he, but like he, what is he doing? He did a ride the other day. He said like he sixty road, miles at twenty something. He did a road race in Massachusetts. This is a so so the way cycling works for the novices at home or whatever, which I'm just learning too. So I'm just you know I'm good. so so in the amateur ranks there are categories. And you start in category five, which is crash five, as they yeah, call it, yeah. which is basically everybody doesn't know how to race a bike, thinks they know how to race a bike. But in, in, all, in all seriousness, it's also quite competitive because you get oh, a lot yeah. of fit athletes who yeah. just are new to cycling. Yeah. And after a certain number of races, you can upgrade to category four and so on up to three to two to one. Now, category one is, is like just below pro, very elite. Yeah. You know, category two is highly competitive, category three. Luke is category four, so he's upgraded to category four. So this is a race in Massachusetts at the start line. And there's 75. The field is limited to 75. 75 men. Yeah. Right. There are of the 75. I think there were seven or eight juniors, but most of those juniors were 16, 17, 18 year olds. These are people who are yeah. five foot nine. I was going to say six foot. Yeah. 140 pounds. You know they. Big, big people. Yeah, yeah men. Little yeah. men. Luca is standing there, and there's a great picture, which I should remind me to show you sometime. Yeah. I'm not going to take out my phone now. At the start line of a crit earlier this in March, and there's a guy who's all kitted out in his like beautiful kit, and he's got his yeah, $4,000 bike, and he's been on the trainer all winter, think, picturing himself riding as Chris Froome. You know, and he's like, you know, da, da, da. and the look on his face, he's sizing up Luca. Yeah. He's standing next to him. <laughs> who's like up to his rib cage. And he's thinking, up to his rib cage, and he's on his, and but in that particular race, with that look, Luca raced 20 laps with the pack. Yeah. And finished with the pack. So in, in the Harvard race that I was talking about, it was a road race, which is different. So it's a 10-mile circuit on open right. roads. 800 feet of climbing or 600 feet of climbing each lap. Four laps. So 40 miles. And, and the, way a, the way a bike race works, as you well know, the pack goes out. And there are surges. There are breakaways. And it's all basically about riding as fast as you can while conserving your energy right. to be able to go faster later. Right. Luca rides lap one with a pack, lap two with a pack, lap three with the pack. Gets popped on the climb of lap three, meaning like yeah. essentially can't keep up yeah, with yeah. the surge shed of the pace. The yeah, shed <laughs> off the back. The, at the top of the climb, this two-mile climb, there's a two-mile plateau before the ascent. He solos his way back to the to wow. the peloton yeah. right so this is a kid who again the equivalent i don't know if, if you're if you're a prize fighter you have been knocked to the mat right and the oh, other guy is dancing is... around doing the whole apollo yeah. creed fit, footwork thing <laughs> showing himself how beautiful you know what i mean that's yeah. the peloton up the road and you've got to get up and and with no help with no help catches the pack comes around and gets shed off the back on the climb on the fourth lap, but finishes in 48th place, which doesn't sound that great, except there are 75 riders. So he beat 27 adult yeah. men yeah. in a 40-mile race. And yeah. the kid is 13. So again, and I don't I think what's what's important, it's funny, like now I sound like that, like I'm like trying to sign him up for the Tour de France. I'm like, <laughs> like that jackass dad who's like, my son's gonna blah 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 blah. And if he's like, the funny thing is, and I think you would you could probably vouch for this. 
I have never said to Luca, you need to ride your bike today. You need to join this team. You need to enter this race. None of that. Oh, this is 100% self-motivated. And even he doesn't really compare. This is what I think is kind of beautiful about it. And this is why I do sort of support it. He doesn't sit there and get all quantified. He just loves to do it. He, we do a shop ride out of Dover. We're in Rollinsford right now, and, and out of Dover on Tuesday nights. It's 20 or so people. They ride 40 miles. They go 21 to 22 miles an hour. The average age has got to be north of 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and he's a 13-year-old, and he likes to hang out with these surly people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a... joking. They're good friends, and they're nice people. But, but my point is, like, a bunch of, like... Yeah. People on a Tuesday night, a bunch of adults who are like going working for a, all day, going working all day, going for a <laughs> going to beat is, each other up. This is their one moment of like, mm-hmm. yeah, just slugging it out. And Luca loves to be there, and he's like more or less first back to the shop every week. You know, there's yeah. some guys who could definitely outride him if they wanted to, but he hangs it. And so, so I guess my point is like, he just comes to it honestly. And the, and the nice thing is that um, he's got he's on this team that has a bunch of great young junior riders so he has like peers in this yeah. too and uh, good kids and uh <clears throat> the team sets a really good model of like yeah cycling's about being competitive and whatever but it's also about just having fun and 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 if you don't you know if your grandmother's got a birthday party you go to the birthday party for your grandma you know what i mean yeah, like you yeah, yeah. you know this isn't your life um yeah. it's fun anyway but, I, but, you, you all you said was cycling and i've been talking well the part of the beauty so. though is that is all that is cool that it brought you back into cycling too and it's got totally. you in the like, two of in us. shape of your life too. yeah because you're 48 and, years old and to let the audience know like you look awesome like you're super fit thank you like Thanks. you're like i saw you today also in your shorts and your right. your shorts were not baggy your right, 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 massive right, right. quads and calves <laughs> were <just> like <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's out. it's a lot of it's cool. uh, a lot it's of awesome. yeah. And to come back to the parenting piece too, my Luke and I have ridden in the last fourteen or fifteen months five thousand miles together. Yeah, it's awesome. so yeah. that is hundreds of hours where awesome. we're going down country roads, and I'll say, "So you know what's up with uh, he had a he had a, little, he had a girlfriend for a mm-hmm. while." You know, we would talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, or we'd talk. Or, his buddy. Yeah, because I'm his buddy. Yeah. Or he'd, he'd ask me. You know, I, I'd be like, yeah, you know, this thing's bugging me at work. Or, you know, whatever. Um, my own weaknesses or my own concerns. Like, yeah. I would share that stuff with him. Yeah. So, um, and then, of course, the, we'd hit a climb and he'd just power ahead. We'll finish this conversation. He, he would bury me. But, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I think it's a... Uh, no, it's great. They keep you young. You know, Julie, my lovely wife, who I probably should talk about more in case she listens to the podcast. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, Julie uh, does have a, she quotes, and I believe she cites whether it's Gertrude Stein, the writer or not, but someone who said people are one age their whole life, meaning mm. essentially that there are old souls, there are young souls. And it's not a judgment. It's not like one's nope, better than the not other. Colette, super old soul. Yes, but exactly. But Super cool kid. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, and I think just to make this about me for a second, I'm young, right? Oh, yeah. I feel Same like, here. and I don't know that I... I'm a teenager. Right. I'm, I, I, and I don't think I appreciated that enough when I was 18 or 19. Yeah. I've been trying to get back there ever since. Not in a kind of um, nostalgic, wistful way, but in a kind of like, no, that's the sweet spot, man. That's where I want to be. Right. Yeah. And so um, I think that, you know, if our kids give us gift, and Colette has given me a million gifts of, of her own beautiful soul but you know lucas which has just been uh he's gotten the old dog off the porch you know and and uh 
and he wants to be with me. Like I, I can say this. Let me think. Yeah, two summers ago in June, we. I mean, we ride together five, four or five, six days a week. There has never been a day where I've said, "Hey, do you want to go for a ride?" That's all. We, that's the only way we talk about it. We don't mm. say like, "Hey, you gotta do blah blah blah." blah. Mm. Hey, that he said no. I got. I, I want to go do X, Y, or Z. Right. He might say, "Hey, you know, all my friends are going in the woods because we live in this neighborhood where kids run around yeah. in the woods. Can we ride later, or can we ride now? Because I know they're, you know, yeah. whatever." But he's never said, nah, "I don't want to do that." You know what I mean? And so I'm just like, as a parent, I'm like, "Wow, that's kick ass!" It is. And, it is uh, awesome. It's huge. So I don't know. We'll see. But I, I'm, you know, that day will come. I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> it will, it will. But it, I mean, it, it should, and that's yeah. why we. That's why we. You know, that's why they're there. But um, exactly. You know. And you and you. It's. I mean, I'm I'm going through it kind of with Bella. You know, like if right. she if she gets a little. Older, she's seventeen. She's yeah. She's turning yeah. seventeen. So like it was. It right. used to be the same thing. Like I we're, just, being we're buddies, 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 and now she's you know we're, you we're know still buddies. Like to be seventeen. Like, uh, not, like it's so vague. Well, no, but I'm saying, but like <laughs> oh, that, I know. that late high school years, like. Yeah. You're becoming an adult yeah, at I that know. point. Like, yeah. you're just your own frame of reference yeah. as an individual. And yeah. so, like, as much as you love your parents or want to hang out with your parents, yeah, I know. it just becomes yeah. less of That's your my world. battle. That's what I'm battling with. Yeah, I know. It's to, like, every day it's kind of like, how much shit should I give Bella for this? You know what right. I mean? Like, because it's it's really, it's all, it's mostly about texting lately. It's about communicating. Right. Uh, and I was giving her shit last night and it, and she started to get annoyed. And I was you like, that I don't she's care, texting get annoyed. And you are, or no, they're... no, communicating with me. Oh, just So I'll, I'll communicate, she won't answer. She won't answer. She won't answer. She won't answer. And this is like, we are like tight. We are like... We are buddies. We're best friends. Right. Like we literally have said, you know, she said it, that my dad's my best friend. Right. And now she doesn't text her best friend back. You know what I mean? And I'm just like, you fucking There's little a disconnect there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, like I said, I, so now I'm battling with like how much shit do I give her and how much do I, you know, because I do understand. Right. I do get it. I do understand. But I still am just like, just, you know, part of the parent in me is just like, answer me. Right. Like you're being well, rude. You're being rude. There's a little bit of it that is like, that to me is a little reminiscent of like a relationship to in a way, like yeah. needing a little bit. Like yeah, I just yeah, texted Luke yeah. the other day. Yeah. He, uh, you know, there was this, I'll just get into this, but there's this horrific bike crash, right? With it. Yeah. And I texted him and I said, hey, you know, there was this really awful crash. And it actually happened in the town that, that his cousin's from. So it kind of was connected. And I said, just ride home safe today, you know, because he'd ridden yeah. his bike to school. And yeah. he rides back, yep. Right, and I'm like, well, that's not enough. Yeah. Wait a minute, and I was, yeah. you know, and yeah. so to me, it was reminiscent of those moments in early life relationships yeah. where I was like, "No, you love me too. This isn't equal." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if you're him, yep, yeah. he's like, "Got it, I'm on it." You know what I mean? But uh, you know, so I can I can see that coming. Is yeah. all I'm saying. Yeah. It? And it's you know, we just we deal with it. I just give her a little shit here and there, and move on. Right. She's still my best friend. Yeah, man. That's great. Um, well, let's talk about your uh, your world, man. What you do. You're what a, I do. You're a, uh, you're, you're a journalist. I am a journalist. And, um, and wow, could that not be further from anything I've ever, <laughs> ever done or uh, aspired to, um, just in the sense of like that, that uh, the, the workload. 
Right. That is one impressive thing to me about, about journalism is just like sitting down and buckling down and writing that much is intense. I to have me. to say, yeah, it's intense to it, me. And it's been interesting. Yeah, you're right. I yeah, mean, because it's, 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 it's a, um, on the one hand, it's really quantifiable. Uh, it's like building something where you're mm-hmm. like, you know, at the end of the day, you're like, here's my story. Yeah. Kind of. Right. But, yeah, but on but the it's... other hand, you can work for three hours and realize, and I'm sure it's the same in any kind of pursuit where you're like, no, it's not what I wanted and you scrap it. Right. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, there's a lot of that in journalism yeah. or in writing yeah. where you you can be highly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you can you can be very busy but not very productive. Right. right? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, Where, yeah. or you're productive in deceptive ways, like it's getting you there, yeah. but but in any given moment, you may not have a lot to show for it, or, yeah. or whatever. Anyway, um, yeah. So, but um, I am. I've been curious for a while. How how did you? Is this was this a Luca like thing when you were young? You you no. You I mean, to do it or what, I, what well, first of you? all, I will say I didn't. I was not. This is a little sad. But I, I wasn't a passionate kid. Mm-hmm. I was a maybe that's why I, I like being thinking of myself as young now is because maybe I wasn't very good at it when I was young. I was like the, I was like the non This is your uh, second try. second try being young. No, but seriously, I remember as a kid, I was like interested in a lot and I did a lot of stuff sort of, but like yeah. I would learn a little bit from an instrument, but I wouldn't learn it. I would study language, but you know what I mean? I, I was the like, same, this, I was the same way. The same thing. Yeah. And it always frustrated me. I was yeah. like, yeah. and so to, I was on the school paper in high school and uh, kind of by default, my senior year ended up being the editor because they needed an editor. But I didn't really love it. You know what I mean? I, I thought it was interesting. But what that did do was it exposed me to this kind of world. I went off to college. I was a history major. I got a job in a company. You know, just like it was following along. And it was like, this isn't what I want to be doing. When I was 23, I was like, you know what I think I remember about that journalism thing I did in high school that was cool? was it was basically like you just hung out in the world mm. and told stories. You know mm. what I mean? And, and you learned about the world and told stories about the world. Mm. But, but, but essentially, the act of being a journalist was about getting to kind of um, sample the world, you know, on any yeah, given moment. And, and, and it could be it. very... Um, and, and, and so just to illustrate that, like one of my, my first jobs as a, like a working journalist was... Um, on the city desk of the Seattle Times, and I was like what they call a general assignment reporter, a GA reporter. So you were basically, you know, the the, the it, this was again just a quick reference for the. I mean, this was pre-internet, right? So this yeah. was like back in the days when it was radio, TV, and newspapers, and newspapers right. were very strong. And Seattle Times was this robust newspaper, and they had a staff. And so I, my one of my earliest jobs is being like the night GA reporter from four to midnight. Which GA? A general assignment. So I would come okay. in and it means that like you'd write whatever was going on. And right. if it was October, they might say, go to the pumpkin patch fundraiser <laughs> and interview the children who are, who are carving pumpkins, right. literally. And it would be that big fluffy feature story on the front page <laughs> that nobody would read, but somebody had to write it. Um, or it could be there was a murder, yeah. mass shooting, and I mean, this was happened to me. Uh, John McGregor, seventeen-year-old kid, shot on a street corner uh, on a Saturday. On a yeah, why well, was I working the morning shift on a Sunday? But I think being the night guy, there's a weird the Sunday morning shift too. Uh, and I remember coming in on Sunday morning, and the shooting happened like two in the morning. And at like seven thirty, the editor's like, "Could you go find out about that?" Knocking on the family's house's door, the single mom answered oh, the door. 
about an hour after she heard that her Jesus. only 17 year old son had been gunned down and uh and you're there to write a story and i'm there can i interview you for this can i interview you about this and i mean talk about Holy as shit. a 23 or 24 year old like fucking intense yeah, right and super uh, intense and i'll tell you sometimes that was very hard but most of the time it would end up being this beautiful thing mm, where sure. um that woman looked at me that i remember the john mcgregor uh his mom looked at me and said she ended up being the compassionate one in that moment because I think she sees me seriously. <laughs> yeah. She her motherly instinct. Yeah, she and she's like, she's like, here's this guy who shows up. He's got, and I did say to her, I'm like, I, I, you know, this is I'll go away. I'll go away. Yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, but but I I said and this this is true too. You know, we need to tell a story. There was, you know, we're trying to find out what happened here, and um, and I'm sure there's a story here, and 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 she said. Um, she said, I'm, I can't talk to you now, but if you come back in a week, maybe I can talk to you. Mm. So like a week later, I went down, knocked on her door again. Was that and literally, like just to get a good visual of that, were you literally still standing at her door and she said, I can't talk to you now, mm. but come back in a week? Wow, yeah. that's so intense. Oh, no. It was like a sunny Sunday morning yeah. in uh, Seattle. No, I mean, and... Uh, it was awful, and then and oh, then yeah. you know and, then, and and I and you know the conversation ends with me just like I'm sorry, right? Like I mean, like on a yeah. human level, like oh, this is yeah. just crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, and as a parent now, my God, I can't imagine. You know, yeah. that's the worst thing about being a journalist is you know that if some horrific thing happens in your life that's public, like a public kind of horrific thing, been there, someone's going to knock on your door, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. and uh, so. Anyway, um, so that's that's the other extreme. There's the pumpkin patch. There's that, yeah. and there's everything in between. But 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 the bottom line is, uh, as a person with many interests and not a lot of passions growing up, journalism was the perfect thing. Yeah. It was like wow, you can go out and a little sample, smattering, smattering yeah, yeah, of the world, yeah, and you can yeah. go out. And so I started that way, which was like a lot of like news stories, right, and uh, or feature stories, and they were simple stuff. But then somewhere along the line, I realized that what I really liked was kind of hanging out with people and seeing how they lived and seeing how the world worked. I mean, this is the most general terms, right? Yeah. But, um, and so that's kind of what I sort of gravitated toward was more like feature length stuff where I could kind of write not so much about this happened yesterday, but here's this situation. People live in a certain way that, it, mm. that, that informs religion or politics or, you know what I mean? is sort of somehow connected back yeah. to our understanding of stuff. Did you do that for, um, so I did that a little bit Seattle times, but I, I, I ended up I mean, long story short is I ended up getting a, uh, applying for a job at the Boston Globe as a news reporter. I was like, Oh, Mr. News reporter guy, you know, jumping up and down for a day in all these offices and interviews, my tie and everywhere. Tie, I was wearing a tie that day. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I was introduced in the hallway to a guy named Joe Yonan, who was a travel editor at the time who said, we're chatting in the hallway. And he says, well, I'm looking for a travel writer. And I'm like thinking to myself, you know, news reporters look at the travel section and they're like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Come on. Three best beaches or whatever. You know what I mean? Like we're over here like like telling truth to power, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And uncovering. Guys, uncovering yeah, yeah. stuff, you know. And <laughs> and you guys are, are like going on holiday. And uh, but anyway, so I was like, oh, that's nice, but no thanks, you know. But Joe was an interesting case in that he had spent time at the news desk and he's this very, he's now a big editor at the Washington Post. You know, he's he's, he's smart, thoughtful guy. And I, uh, so I went back to him the next day and I said, well, look, 
if you, because the paper would only have one staff writer and there's a lot of freelancers out there. I said, if you would be into me as a staff writer, essentially using it as a mini National Geographic, like writing stories of experience, you know, mm. going out, traveling, the premise being that people aren't going to go here. Like these are not meant to be following me in my footsteps kind of stuff, right? Like this is meant to be like, I'm going to go out and like write about the world. And, you know, occasionally, yeah, sure, I'll go write about something nice that people might want to do, but I'll, I'll like, but, and he was really into it and really supportive of it. Huh. So, so he hired me into that position and I spent seven years doing that. And oh. the globe sent me to 45 countries. Oh. I mean, I'm yeah. surprised uh, intuitively for some reason, I'm surprised that that didn't just occur to you the second he said that, like, are you kidding me? No, Travel? No. Like it, it took you me, bet. it took me that it was, it was five hours later at dinner in, in back Bay, Boston with You're Julie's like, cousins. What did I just say? Well, no, no to Julie's cousins. We were, we were sitting having Thai food. I was going to ask if you were married at that point. Yeah. Right? But we were having Thai food and, uh, I remember Michael, where he's, I'm like blah, blah, blah about why I wouldn't want to be a travel writer. And he, and he goes, because he's not in journalism, right? So he's just looking at this clear-eyed and smart. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. like, so let me get this straight. <laughs> you, you travel around and write whatever you want to write. And I was For like, free. And get and, paid. And, and, get paid. And, and I was like, uh-huh. And as I'm saying, uh-huh, you know, I'm like, oh. Check, please. <laughs> I see what you did there. I have a phone call to make. You know? And so really it was. It was the next morning. I was like, like my Jerry Maguire mission statement, you know, from that, whatever that movie was, where he's like up all night, like, uh-huh. Yeah. And um, no, but it was it was great. It was a rare opportunity where um, I would propose a number of stories to Joe or to subsequent editors I worked mm-hmm. with. And of course, they had things they wanted and they might say, hey, could you go do this or whatever? But we could pretty much always find common ground. And um, and the big thing I like to do was um, kind of come up with these concept stories. Where, so anyway, I, yeah. Quick aside, so I, I had the pleasure of working with a guy who's still one of my best friends, this guy, Estris Suarez, amazing photographer. He started The Globe the same week I did, and we got put together on our, our first story. And uh, <clears throat> it was about, it was supposed to be, so this is this was like starting with training wheels. Joe comes to me and says, hey, it's John Steinbeck's 100th. He would have been 100 this year, and there's a bunch of stuff going on in Steinbeck country in California. Would you go write a story about it? And I was like, yeah, Sure. So I go out and I read a bunch of Steinbeck's novels and stuff I should have read in high school or whatever. And uh, I go out and I'm roaming around and I'm like, hey, man, Steinbeck was all about like the grapes of wrath and, you know, the migrant farm workers and the injustice of the whole system and blah, blah, blah. And California, now we've got like, you know, immigrant farm workers Mm. and all this Cesar Chavez legacy that's come afterwards and stuff. And so I end up as part of my story going to a housing uh, project where a lot of Mexican farm workers are living in, frankly, like just squalor yeah. because of the landlords are, it's just, I mean, completely unjust, crazy system and, uh, hang out working with this guy named Sabino Lopez, who's a farm worker advocate. So this travel story in the Boston Globe magazine about John Steinbeck ends up, of course, there's talk about East of Eden and blah, 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 but it ends up with this whole passage it to... where I'm hanging out in this apartment that has water coming through the roof and they call the landlord, the landlord doesn't fix it. Now the kids have all got these respiratory ailments and blah, 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 blah in freaking 2008 or whatever it was. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so Estrus uh, gets signed to go out and shoot photos for this thing. 
And he comes back and he's like, dude, we can work together. You know what I mean? Like, we, we got stuff. We, we <laughs> he's got, like, I like your stuff. Yeah, we got stories to tell. <laughs> so he and I spent 200 days on the road together over the next seven years on different assignments. We, oh, cool. we were in Sudan and China and Russia and Belarus. Venezuela, you know, I mean, all over. Like and what kind of stories? So, so this was, yeah, this is the point I was going to make about these concept stories. So sometimes it'd be a one-off kind of thing, mm. but we quickly realized that the more that, and rightly so, like the more interesting stuff, if we could kind of propose a kind of concept that we would go out. So estrus would pop up over my, uh, that's little cubicle. <laughs> right here. The globe. I was actually next to the sports guys. I remember Will McDonough, who was this famous globe him, sports yeah, writer. Yeah. He, he used to, uh, do his annual uh, and again I'm not like a football guy but he would do his annual draft predictions and so he would be on the phone all day calling coaches and he'd be like yeah Bill Parcells in place yeah okay hey Bill uh, you know blah 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 somebody tells me you guys name and so I've been sort of sitting there at my little desk listening to all this stuff <laughs> anyway uh, Estrus would pop up over the edge of my little cubicle like the guy from Home Improvement or whatever that TV show was <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. he'd be like hey I got an idea and I'd be like what is it Estrus and he'd say we should do a story on great divides. And I, okay, I guess it's a start, you know what I mean? But like, I guess he meant like, I don't know, the Himalayas. And I was kind of like... The physical... I guess so. I was kind of like... Divides. Yeah, and I mean, if Esther's were here, he'd be laughing at me yeah. saying this because right. I give him, I used to give him shit about this all the time. And I'd be like, okay, that's kind of like an idea, but it's not like a story. You know what I mean? Like, what's the story? And I said, you know, no offense, but you're going to go and take amazing photographs. Right. And I'm going to have to write a story. Right. I'm so, going to write poems while sitting in a mountain. <laughs> right. So I'm going to need, like, characters and action and, and insight and stuff that's going to happen. So this is how we would work together. But then he would walk away and, and I'd be sitting there myself. And I'd be like, but there's something to what you're saying. You know? yeah. So I said, well, how about if we do a series on crossing divides where we go as a team and we pick four geographic and cultural divides around the world and we move across them and the journeys of the story. And we knew that we didn't want to pick hot spots that were already highly covered and we're going to go from the West Bank or something to into Israel. You know, I mean, not that that wouldn't be an amazing story, yeah. but it was frankly, there were you know, 800 journalists already right. there and it wouldn't be something that we could access or necessarily understand as well. But we wanted to pick places that were less seen, but in a way might actually illustrate those hot spots or, or enlighten our understanding of that mm. stuff. And so we came up with, uh, from, a series of four journeys on four continents. So in South America, we went from the Savannah, the geographic divide was from the Savannah into the jungle. And the cultural divide was from Venezuela into Brazil. And this is perhaps the lightest of them all, but in some ways kind of most interesting. Yeah. In Africa, we went from Sudan, from Khartoum, Sudan into Egypt. And it was across the Bayuda desert. And it was basically between sort of sub-Saharan black Africa and Arabic Africa. Oh, that's North, a great right? idea. And then in, uh, in Asia, it was, well, I'll talk about Asia in a second. The, the fourth one we did was from the Bering Strait from northeastern Russia into the U.S., right? And so it was from like post-communist, blah, 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 into uber-capitalist and, you know, the, all this mm. stuff. And, uh, and then in Asia, we had dreamt about and tried to make work from... Uh, mm from southern China up onto the Tibetan plateau mm. and into Tibet, but we weren't going to do it without visas and credentials because frankly, it was just too big of an outlay of time and effort. And, and it, we would have, we knew we would get turned back without it. We would get caught at some point. Yeah. Um, and 
So we petitioned the Chinese government for like six months and I called a guy, I forget his name now, I wish I knew his name, the guy in the Chinese consulate in New York City. And I swear to God, I called that guy every day for about six weeks. And we'd have, he's a bureaucrat guy working there. And I say, hello, you know, um, Mr. X. Um, is Tom from the Boston Globe. And I'm calling to see if our visas are ready. And he'd say, oh, you know, how are you, Mr. Haynes? Yes, yes, we're working on it. And, uh, <laughs> we put that, and I'd say, well, thank you. Is there anything I can do? You know, he'd say, you know, just kind of like playing the game with them, killing them with kindness uh, in their face. And he kept saying, I believe you're going to get this, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you call me next week. Call me next week. You know, I call every day. You know, blah, blah, blah. Leave him a voicemail, whatever. Finally, of course, we didn't get the visas. So... It ended up being a blessing in disguise, as you know, when one door closes off and another one mm-hmm. opens. And uh, Estrus came up with this one. He said, there are these, he's an amazing photojournalist, he's like, there are these, the widest series of cataracts in the world are the Cone Falls on the Mekong River between Laos and Cambodia. Uh-huh. And it's like deep in Southeast Asia, but it's had this historic, crazy impact because because of the cataracts, it basically stopped river transport like back in the days, pre-industrial days mm. from China into Southeast Asia. Mm. So it sort of has had this epic you know, impact. So we went with that and that also ended up being crazy because we were way up in Northern Cambodia. Um, anyway, what we would do in these places is we'd do a little planning. We'd often hire a translator if we didn't speak the language. Estrus is a native Spanish speaker. So we had, you know, in, in uh, Venezuela, for example, we didn't have a translator or yeah. whatever, but um, we'd often hire like what's called a fixer, you know, somebody who speaks the language and can kind of help you get around. You know, the culture as well. Yeah, yeah. And just like a kind of a can do person. Right. And we'd wing it. And we go into these places and we look for stories. And, uh, the very first the one, two, we, we would just go around and you would, and you would write and he, I would write and he would take pictures. Right. And we, Crazy. we kind of sit around at, at the end of the night and have dinner and be like, what do you got? What do you think? What's going on? You know, and we, we, we tried to compliment each other, not, uh, you know, not mirror each other, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, uh, so a perfect example is the first trip was in Venezuela and we knew we were going down to this town called, uh, Cavallan, which is in, in the, the high plateau Savannah. And we were going to kind of start there. And we didn't know what that meant. It was a little right. na- a native, um, uh, village that had been, uh, Oh, what's the word? Oh my God! You know, with monks, like they had come in, the missionaries had come in mm. and set up a, a church, Catholic church, and whatever. You know, a century before, and there was still like a Catholic school, and and we knew there would be some cultural collision, kind of interesting things going on. But as we're taking this little bus down through that freaking savannah, like you know, one of these places that stops in every little town, and. I'm like bus sick and just hanging out. And, and Estrus is talking to all these guys in Spanish in the back of the bus. I'm like, what are you guys talking about? They say, you know, it's interesting. They're saying a word that I don't know what it means. You know, it's like, <laughs> they keep saying booya and it must be slang because I don't know what booya is. And, uh, and, but they're all going there. These were like clearly like hardworking guys. They had their like backpacks and, and, and gear. And, uh, so he, so I'm like, well, we'll find out what it means. You know? And so he's talking to them for a little bit and he goes, Oh, booya means gold rush. And I'm like, they're going to a gold rush? <laughs> and I'm like, I may not be the world's best journalist, but I think that, you know, the gold rush is where this, we want to be. There's a story here. There's a story here. <laughs> so we get off in this, like, couple, that night and a couple towns later, and um, a couple, what was it called? Uh, oh, my God, I'm getting old. But this little town, I think Christiana or something, this little roadside 
this is one thing I know from being in 45 countries, particularly in the developing world, there are lots of these little roadside towns that just yeah. are all very similar. You know, these little centers of commerce, scratchy, um, not a lot going on, but they kind of survive off the road. And yeah. we get there and, and they say, yeah, the, the mine is two miles into the jungle here and you'll go in the morning and we go and holy shit it was um so this is it comes to find out it's a huge gold mine complex it's the largest one of the largest single remaining gold deposits in the world owned by a company called crystal x in canada so it's a major corporate deal but yeah yeah so it has a lot of mining from like the whole british columbia alberta blah blah blah. i'm not sure if it's alberta but the the western part of canada but crystal x at the time was not mining it and so because of different business stuff they're looking for financing blah blah blah. and yet there was gold surface deposits too and hugo chavez who passed away last year who is the like socialist leftist Mm -hmm. president Mm -hmm. of venezuela said to the poor people of venezuela you can go in there and mine that so they just took down the chain link fences and set up these surface mining operations. So the people that you were following and doing this story were basically on like were just civilians. Civilian just day laborers who were going to a gold rush. Oh I mean God. like this is San Francisco in eighteen forty nine. Seriously. Like That's crazy. families, the whole kick. Were they getting out. rich? They were making money and like any boom, it depended on who you were and how you handled it and yeah. all that stuff. But yeah. um so we go in and we spend the day and it was so huge pits up like waist deep in muddy water and they would have these sluices. I'll show you photos sometime. Mm-hmm. There's these beautiful photos. These wooden scaffolding things, you know, 30, 40 feet high yeah, with together. pumps taking the water. And they would basically wash these walls down of mud. And the, the mud would collapse and get sucked up in these vacuums onto the conveyor belts into these. And then the, 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 the um, scaffolding had these chutes, had carpet that would basically start to grab the mud and the mm-hmm. dirt. And keep coming down, down, down. Sort of like a sifting process. A sifting process. Yeah, yeah. Come back down into the pond where these guys are standing with balls of mercury in their hand, which is highly toxic to the human head. And they would grab the mud and they would kind of rub it. And I guess the mercury attracts the gold. So they would be getting all this flaked gold and they would end up with these little nuggets of gold. And then they would they would work like twenty four hour shifts or twelve hour shifts or whatever. And and it, I mean, it, and seriously, and it, yeah. and it was a young man's game for sure, young yeah. person's game. Most of the people were like, you know, these twenty two, twenty three year old guys, and they would go back up to the little roadside town, and a lot of guys would drink it away or party it away or whatever. A lot of guys that were families there sounds they like were, the uh, fishing industry in like Gloucester, yeah, or Alaska, like the yeah, you yeah, know the yeah. crab fishing. No, seriously, yeah, like yeah. they go out and get a big payday and then go in. Yeah. But there were also I remember there was this one family uh, that had set up a, a tarp and a shack, and he was the guy, if I remember correctly, who had everybody had a, an angle, right? And this guy owned one of the generator suction things oh. that would suck the water that was kind of so he was kind of one of the kingpins yeah of the pit. so he's so he's providing basically providing a tool and taking so cut. all the guys in the pit are paying him a little bit right to keep the water going to sit there and watch his machine work right because if his machine isn't pumping they're not getting any gold coming so and he was and he was not you know he was working hard and doing all this yeah, stuff too but yeah, yeah. but he's there and I remember there were like three girls and two boys you know like and the mom was cooking chicken and they were having lunch under the thing and you know and so here's one interesting little point so 
you know, on the one hand, you think, holy cow, this is a, just an awful existence, right? Like, certainly for the children yeah, on, on a certain yeah. level, like, they're not in school, they're not getting yeah. an education, uh, a lot of hardship. Where's their shower? Where's their shower? So, like that. But, and this comes to our whole, like, industrial society thing, there was also just a beauty and an intimacy to mm-hmm. it. They clearly were a close knit family, mm-hmm. um, they were all together, they were all eating together talking mm-hmm. together and they were healthy i mean it mm-hmm. wasn't an issue of like yeah, yeah. um uh, of malnutrition or anything you know what I mean? and so i guess i it was in situations like that that i really started to become uh aware of and impacted by this kind of like disconnect but like like our over success of the industrial age and our over insulation all this stuff and yeah clearly it's wonderful in certain regards for modern medicine and all this stuff, but just in lifestyle, you yeah. know, like I thought, Oh, well, who's the idiot now? I'm 3000 miles away from my son, with a notebook in my hand in the jungle doing my job. And this guy is having chicken with his kid for lunch. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like, yeah, yeah. you know, which one of us, which one of us is like better off quote unquote, right. you know? So, um, and I guess my point is not that it's an either or, right. but, but there was, there was stuff. So yeah. And then Africa, then, then China and, or then, um, but then, then Esther and I did finally make it to China for a different story. And we were in, yeah, all around India. I did a story mm-hmm. with a different photographer, uh, it would often happen like this. I'd gotten back from somewhere and I didn't know what I was going to write about. And I was reading the paper and I saw an article that said Mahatma Gandhi's great grandson, Tushar Gandhi, is going to lead a recreation of the 26 day salt march in which in 1930, wait, let's see, this is 2005, so 1930, Gandhi had walked for 26 days from Ahmadabad, I think the city is, to Dundee, which is a little town on the coast, and then as an act of civil disobedience, it was a very orchestrated, mm-hmm. very high-profile thing, mm-hmm. harvested salt because the British had imposed a salt tax on the Indians and said, you can't harvest your own salt, right? So Gandhi, who was trying to fight for independence from Britain, so his grandson in 2005, to honor this great tradition or this great event 75 years later was gonna and so they were walking for 26 days and so i'm like that sounds like an interesting story so that's a perfect example of like this that's where i ended up in the travel section but no one's gonna go do that like you can't just do it as a civilian so i had to be as a reporter you know i contacted tushar gandhi and said can a photographer and i come and walk with you guys and he's like Sure. It's amazing. Like you were the only one that asked him so to do that. So some local Indian press yeah. did it. It was a big story in yeah. India. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But no, yeah, but worldwide. But worldwide, Tom from Boston Globe. Tom from Boston Globe shows up with Barry Chin of Boston Globe, a great guy, and uh, talk about a great way to get to know. Oh, to see India, yeah. if you're going to be in India for one or one week, which is essentially what it was. Yeah. With we Mahat showed up at this, they, so they followed kid. his route. So again, he was walking. He's his grand grandson. Grand yeah, yeah. And there were many. There are many grandkids. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, but uh, he. Let me think. Maybe walking six, eight, ten miles a day. But when Gandhi did it, he was already a celebrity, right? Mm-hmm. He was already known as the Mahatma. And so mm-hmm. he would come into each village and he would stop, and he would hold. Uh, a council with the village elders and he would talk about mm-hmm. something and he was obviously he would talk about his different tenets of life and whatever mm-hmm. and um 
so this walk recreated it. But the other thing is that I didn't know when I talked to Tushar, the walk was sort of in jeopardy because they were having trouble arranging logistics in the weeks beforehand. And they were reluctant to get the Congress party, which would basically be like getting the Democratic Party involved, which was the party of Gandhi, but back in the day, but now it's like a different, you know, it's slightly different. And the party claims Gandhi as their legacy. And so, but Tushar didn't want to be political. But finally, in the 11th hour, in order to help with the logistics, he said, we got to have the Congress party involved because they can make this happen. So by the time I show up and get off the plane in, in Bombay and take the train up to, I forget the town we met them in, there are about a thousand young, idealistic Indian political activists from around the country, from every state, literally. The, the Congress Party picked, I think, like 10 or 20 people from each state, mm. more than that, obviously, and had them take part in this walk. So I'm walking through India with, like, the nation of India. You know, there'd be a kid from Tamil, uh, you know, some from this province, from that province. Uh, somebody who grew up in a wealthy family, somebody who grew up in a poor family, different caste, different, wow. the whole deal. And we, we'd be walking, so we'd have nothing to do but talk, yeah. you know. And then we would get to a village, and people would have been cooking all day for this huge party coming. And then Tushar would lead a town discussion, basically as Gandhi did, right, about issues today. And so, was he good at it? Yeah, and was he was he? He's great. And yeah. Then, yeah, no, and there were other dignitaries, other politicians yeah. who would tag along for a day, or they'd show up in a Mercedes at, a, at an yeah. event. Yeah. Um, That's an amazing, amazing. Yeah, no, and then I would wander off with a, like I would get like the, it's too bad I, I have all emails from all these like I was friends with some of these people I walk with for a while. And I've lost as life yeah. happens, I've lost touch, but. Um, I would say, you know, one of them would say, hey, you know, I'll, I'll translate for you if you want to go. Like, they, they would speak English because they were, you know, educated and, in, you know, obviously the English is a very common language. But they would also speak, you know, Hindi or, you know, whatever, the, a different dialect of there from the region or whatever. They say, oh, do you want to go wander around? And so we would go in one town, for example, Gandhi had held a talk where uh, the untouchables, the lower class, right, the town leaders wouldn't, hadn't let them come over and hear Gandhi speak. And Gandhi said, well, if you don't invite them over, then I'm going to leave. You know, and, and this was 75 years ago. So really it's taking a stand on like social justice mm. and equality. So in that town, we wandered back some back alleys into these Dalit, which is the, the untouchable class neighborhood. Um, what does that mean, untouchable? Why, what, like, well, in the caste system, untouchable in, in a in a in a lower sense, not in a in an upper sense. Like right, meaning that they are so you low, don't want to touch, touch them. There's oh, that's like weird. A, that's yeah, so there's weird. like a physical thing. Yeah. As a practical thing, what it means is they basically are the people who do the, the dirty work, the dirty yeah. jobs. You know, they're you know, and so I would talk to uh, them, and like, I'd say, "Has anything changed?" You know, and they're like. No, like, they, like their names, their family names are known through the generations, right? So this one guy was a chemist, and he's like, well, the upper-class people in the town, if they would welcome the, me into the their... touchables? Yeah, they would welcome me into their kitchen to do the dishes, but they wouldn't let me come in the front door. You know, or he sort of metaphorically read the table. Yeah. But it's, I mean, they, we, basically the same kind of shit we got going on in this country yeah. in different ways, you know. So it was just fascinating. And then in this other town, um, I met a woman... Her last name is Patel, 105 years old. Oh, cool. She had been 30 when Gandhi walked through town. Oh, wow. He had given her a shawl. And so she was sitting there on her little cot 
rocking and the shade of her is like a hundred degrees outside mm. and her grandson or great grandson was translating with for us and we're talking about kind of so just these kind of epic um epic moments and yeah so that's what i did for seven years and meanwhile back at home my kids were growing up yeah and, that's crazy and, and it was i would get home from a trip and like go out in the garden and we'd like hang out i remember i was in turkey once in 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 the kurdish area far east in the and there was a new year's festival which is a huge political event because it's you know there's a separatist movement between basically the turkish government and the kurds basically a civil war going on and uh so we were on in the inside the side that was rebelling Mm -hmm. um and it was their big new year and so it was a very there's a lot of violence and whatever but this guy had a cart of cucumbers that he was selling Another example, like the family that was all like eating right, lunch right. together, yeah. and it's cart of cucumbers, and you would say, you go, uh, you know, it's a vendor, and so you go buy a cucumber from him, and he would pick up a cute. He would ask you to pick your cucumber, and then and then he would pick it up, and he would he would kind of peel it, he'd hold it at the bottom, that's right, we're on the radio, but he would he would hold like a popsicle, yeah. and he would shave off the skin, you know, of the cucumber, and then he would slice it down the middle top to bottom except for the bottom part the handle yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he would go shake his hand and it would kind of fillet open right yeah. these two halves of cucumber and he took salt and he would shake the salt down in it and then he would whip it back together and it would stick together and he'd hand it to you like this popsicle oh weird that's cool and I'm, I just remember taking a bite of this thing freshest saltiest mm. glorious cucumber and I thought of all the shit at stadiums and stuff in the U.S. for sale, like bad, cheesy, American cheese nachos. And here it is, and it's a and, dime. And it's a dime. Yeah. And so I got home like three days later to our house in Ipswich, Massachusetts, and my son and I, who he was like three, you know, we went to the garden store and we planted cucumbers, and I had two crazy vines of cucumbers nice. that summer, and we would sit out in the garden, and I remember he would eat them off the vine in the garden. Yeah. So tried to bring back the best of those moments. Oh, that's so uh, cool! You know, I'm gonna try that. Yeah, I'm gonna try that little. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Little cucumber yeah. technique. Cucumber technique. Yeah. They, they, they need to be. They cannot be those big mega greenhouse store bought things. Yeah. You know, they have to be the farm stand kind yeah. of cucumber that yeah. has like character and and, yeah. and sort of on the smaller side. A little. Uh, but um, but yeah. So no, I mean, I I it was during that job that I got um away from telling stories about institutions and telling stories much more at ground level and yeah. people level and, and just... So is this, is this where you got... Basically, this is, it sounds to me like this is the beginning of your book. Yeah, so the book I did... So I come to UNH and I become a faculty member and I was thinking, you know, what do I want to do as a journalist, right? And I, like on the one hand, I'm a free spirit now, free, free actor, whatever. I, you know, I can go off and write about anything. But I thought you know, what's my deal? What's my currency? Like, what do I know how to do? And, and it, partly for comfort zone, like I wanted to feel like I was doing something I knew how to do. Um, but I'm not the kind of person who necessarily wants to like write about the history of a, of a chemical spill in a town, you know what I mean? Yeah, or yeah. something that, 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 that is really like just investigating documents and piecing it all together. Yeah, it sounds one dimensional for lack of a better. Well, yeah. I mean, those are amazing stories and they're amazing storytellers who, who do them, but that's just not my thing. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I realized that both, um, I wanted the stories I wanted to tell. I wanted to be driven by this movement through place again. And, mm-hmm. and the second piece is the part of me that likes to be young is I wanted it to be, uh, 
an adventure. Yeah. I, I didn't want to be driving around a rental car with with a um, or flying a notebook. Place to place. Yeah, yeah, you know. And so basically, the premise of this book was I'm going to go. Well, the premise of the book was about, as we talk about fuel and how we're disconnected from our fuel sources now, but I was like, I want to go to oil field and coal field and gas field. And I'm going to, when I get there, I'm going to walk and I'm going to kind of, you know, that was a little more extreme than what I did at the globe. Cause I typically at the globe was somehow motor powered, you yeah, know, yeah. but, um, the idea was to be really close to the land and to be vulnerable and to be, um, Basically, a friend, when I was in North Dakota, the very first walk, I was walking through the Bakken oil boom, and it was crazy time. It was like it was not unlike the gold rush in a weird way in the Venezuelan jungle in that, you know, 4,000 wells had been drilled in two or three years. It was like people had come from all over America. If you were out of work and upside down on your mortgage, mm. and you had a pickup truck and a hammer, you were going to the gold or to the oil field, and you would get as a roughneck or hired on as a line cider or whatever. And then you're making 25 bucks an hour within one day and 50 bucks an hour the next week. It was just, you know, it was, it was boom. Hmm. And um, so I'm walking through this and people, these huge pickup trucks, I'm on these country prairie farm roads, big, you know, two ton King cab pickup trucks. It's like the modern day horse, right? Like that's everybody right. took their, their prospecting pan and took a pickup truck out to the gold, the oil boom. And, uh, these trucks come barreling up, slid in the gravel, and I'm there with my backpack and my stick. These big guys, tattooed arms, you know, whatever, they like lean out the thing. Tattooed and, and type. I got tattooed type. I'm, I'm, I'm joking here for the <laughs> podcast because Chris has tattooed arms. Um, no, but you know what I mean? But it's sort of essentially like the prototype of like big, rough, independent, yeah. tough person, right? We'd look at, dude, what are you doing? What the hell are you doing out here walking? You need, you need a ride? First of all, they think I was a de- out of my luck, down on my luck guy. Yeah. Like I lost my horse. I lost my pickup truck. Right? You, know, <laughs> yeah, you run like, out of gas. We'll like get you into town, back. son. You know. But second of all, they were curious about what I was doing. Yeah. And that's what I was looking for, kind of narratively. Was and, and this was to say a friend of mine here in New Hampshire. I would I would kind of like tweet some stuff or whatever from these walks and and I wrote about that on a blog and I tweeted it out and he wrote back and he said you have arrived in a place. Now, you, you have entered a place that nobody arrives in by accident. So by definition, you're part of the team. You yeah. know, and it was re- that was kind of the idea mm. that I really enjoyed about being in the globe. We would end up in the middle of nowhere, Estrus and I, and people would say, wow, these guys are so far from home and they've come to hear our story or they've come to learn about our place. They would, you know, welcome us yeah, with open yeah, arms. Yeah, yeah. You know? Roll the red carpet. Roll the red carpet. And, yeah. and, um, in these little Sudanese villages, this is post 9-11. This was like, remember that highway in, in Sudan that Osama bin Laden built in between the Afghan war and 9-11? Uh, bin Laden went to Sudan for like six years and, and he was like a kind of a jihadist king there. And, and he built this big highway. We drove that highway, right? We were in these, along the Nile in these little villages. And so... In some ways, this is an area where people might have allegiance to Osama bin Laden or connections to him, whatever. And, you know, I'm an American journalist. Estrus is a Panamanian American journalist. We show up. We're like, we want to talk to you guys. And everybody's like, here, sit, sit. We'll make you tea. You know, mm-hmm. people, and they would just tell us about, you know, we just learned about what was going on. So I think my point is that... Um, when you're vulnerable as a journalist in the, in socially and culturally in the eyes of, of the people you're writing about, 
there's an openness that comes with that. And it's not to be manipulative. It's, it's oh, yeah. kind of to kind of put yourself on an equal footing. Yeah. Um, and so being out in the oil field, uh, you know, I'm walking down the road one night, the only pedestrian I saw for 70 miles, I'm walking down this dirt road and a farmer, Leaf Jealous said, thanks Leaf, if you ever listen to this podcast, had said I could camp in his alfalfa pasture that he leased down four or five miles down this road. His ranch was about 10 miles the other direction. But he said, when you get to this part of the prairie, whatever, you have, you know, because I just wanted permission to be where I was sleeping. Yeah. And I'm walking to this alfalfa pasture at twilight. And I'm like, there's somebody walking up on that rise in the road. And off to the right was a ranch house. And I was like, it cannot be a rancher because they would be on a pickup truck or an ATV or a yeah. horse. Yeah, you know, exactly. like ranchers don't walk down the road, you right. know. And, uh, or, off to, the, to the, the east, I mean to the left, but it was the east, was an oil rig, 200 feet high in the air. And these oil rigs are the drilling rig. It wasn't an oil well. It was the, the drilling rig, 20-story rig with little cities of trailers around with kitchens. Uh-huh. And they live 24 hours a day. Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. staff lives up there. They're basically like a like an offshore rig on the prairie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, something, it's got to be an oil guy. But what's he doing walking out here? So it's, he's about a quarter mile away, so... I come plodding along with my walking stick in my backpack and he's kind of laughing at me and I'm kind of laughing at him and <laughs> oh and I won't tell the story but I had a, a uh, the, to prove the point about being welcomed to the place I had a, a, a plastic white plastic bag with a six pack of cold paps blue ribbon because some oil guys had said dude you it's still too, need this. too fucking hot out here man you gotta you take this to your camp so he's laughing at me and, and we get to talking what do you he said what are you doing well I'm a writer and I'm out here walking and writing about the oil field and kind of whatever okay you know <laughs> what do you do and he tells me about his life growing up on a ranch in utah and then working in the oil and gas fields in pinedale wyoming during the fracking there and in oklahoma he's been up in the bakken for four years and i'm like okay he's got his house he's got a halliburton drill bits and services cap on and a carhartt shirt you know the whole deal and i almost didn't ask but at the end i'm like so what do you what do you do on the rig you know oh me i'm a supervisor they pay me to come out here and get this fucking thing drilled no matter how it has to get done. So I'm like, oh, I'm like, can I come hang out with you guys tomorrow? You know, yeah. and before I got in North Dakota, I had called all these oil companies, Hess, Petro Hunt, blah, 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 yeah, the yeah, journals, yeah. and they're all like, screw you. No, yeah, yeah. Kyle looks at me and he's like, absolutely. <laughs> so the next morning, I go camp in the alfalfa pasture. And the next morning, I double back two miles. Kyle throws me a hard hat and glasses, and I'm 60 feet up on the rig floor mm. as these guys are putting more steel pipe going two miles down, two miles over into the Bakken oil field. I mean, it was like being uh, like on the front lines of a war. You yeah. know what I mean? Just noise and, and pressure and action. intensity and action. And everybody's got a job and everybody's in character. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. Um, kind of off on a tangent. But I mean, I think that, but my, oh, I mean, I just, I would have never been there had I not been walking. Right. You know, but never been on the oil. Yeah. And that's true on every, every yeah. one of these no, trips. It was, a great, yeah. Yeah. it was a great idea. Yeah. But so. describe what your, um, describe what the book is, is about basically. Like, um, yeah. Said, so it's, 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 it's fuel, but it's, a, it's our connection with. It's evolved. In the beginning, I, the, it was more the journalist in me was like, I'm going to go out and document fuel in America. And I'm going to write about, and it was, this was three or four years ago when fracking was really a big deal. And I'm going to go, I mean, fracking still a big deal, but it's not as like front and center right now. And I'm like, I'm going to go out and write about what's happening. And that's still kind of quote unquote, like the stuff of the book. 
But I think the theme of the book, and certainly I've evolved in the book, and that it's much more personal now, and it's much more kind of about, frankly, when you're you know middle aged and you're out sleeping like underneath an oil rig or you know underneath but like you know a couple hundred yards away from an active oil rig on the prairie or next to the coal tracks in in, in uh, eastern wyoming or the powder river basin which is basically the fuel box of america with its open pit coal mines um or in uh i was sleeping on a farm where the first fracked uh natural gas well in pennsylvania was drilled in dimmick which was became the whole kind of gas land water contamination place you know when you're out there in middle age sleeping there it becomes much less about the technology or the fuel and just about kind of our relationship with nature and kind of how far and this was to answer your question specifically the book has become about kind of an exploration of how far we've removed we've become from kind of the sources of fuel and not so much in just practical terms like oh we don't really know where the gas in our tank comes from but in kind of deeply psychic terms of like so what does that mean for our our understanding of the scale of how we live in nature and um and that can be both very personal like we talked about this before people are frenzied and they're rushing to meet deadlines and they're feeling overworked and underpaid and you know and all this Mm -hmm. stuff partly because they're not out chopping their own wood and like harvesting their own turnips you know what i mean like like there's that thing but also climate change like you know i mean like these are we've realized i mean i guess what it's helped me to realize just and, and if i feel like i've really gained kind of like repertorial authority of anything from being out there is like just an awareness a deep awareness of how from a distance, something like drilling for oil or open pit mining or the amount of consumption we do can be seem kind of scientific and there can be experts who can explain it. But when you're there at ground level, you realize just how epically crazy it is yeah. that we can drill two miles down, two miles over, shatter with chemicals rock that is 350 million years old. <laughs> right 350 million years old pull it up in an instant rip out the stuff we want which is the oil take the stuff we don't want which is the chemicals the uh, the salt water everything that comes mm-hmm. up pump it back down a mile underground into an aquifer and it will not aquifer into a sand level but near aquifers and some geologists say it'll be fine there but what you realize just on a human common sense level is like we don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, or maybe not. We have never done this. And, 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 and this is clearly the point of like what we're learning with climate change now and, and all this stuff is for all this sort of apparent certainty that the Industrial Revolution has brought, and it has in certain ways. Like now, if you have a flutter in your heart, you can go to a hospital and they can put you on, you know, and they can tell you, oh, this is what's happening. Take this medication. You know, I mean, there's, there's certain ways that we have kind of, quote unquote, brought certainty to the very um, unpredictable state of nature, right? That is maybe not bad. But on the macro level, this is this experience has never been run before, right? right? And so if a scientist says, oh, yeah, petroleum engineers, oh, yeah, well, you can just go down there and hammer this and grab that, and it's not going to have it. We don't, you know, we don't know. And, and, and so it's just been kind of um, interesting and enlightening to be in a lot of these different places where, um, and I do feel like because I'm walking, because I'm sleeping, like, I'll tell you what, you want to feel like an intimate connection to the place and kind of an intenseness be out there at night. Nobody's out there at night. 
I mean, nobody is out there at three in the morning. Uh, there are coyotes and there's yeah. you and there's flares going off everywhere and everybody else is in bed, you know? And uh, so you get a kind of a deeply personal kind of, kind of connection to it. Um, and well, and you also realize like when you're moving foot by foot, um, step by step, I should say, like how... The, just the scale thing. So, so this guy Leaf Jealous had to let me camp on his alfalfa field. Also, had leased some land for a, what's called an SWD, a salt water disposal. So, this is that system. So, so it, when they're fracking for the oil, they go down, down, they drill, they they frack up the, the the oil. They get the wastewater and they take it to a salt water disposal facility and they pump it back down a mile underground. So, he had leased the surface area for one of these SWDs to put the water back down. Put the water back down. So I realized a couple days after I had left Leaf's ranch and slept in his alfalfa field and moved on and blah, blah, blah. I'm like walking by and a little sign that says jealous at SWD. And I'm like, Oh, that's that land. I get on my map, you know, like, wow, we're 20 miles away, but he has a lot of land. And hmm. so I come home to my life in New Hampshire about, I don't know, maybe six weeks later, I get an email from the North Dakota regulatory agency that reports spills. And it says, and, and it's these little, press releases are always a hoax they're like one paragraph long and they're always contained by the time they're released yeah. but it says a wastewater spill at the Jellisad SWD 9,000 gallons spilled at the surface level but it has been contained and cleaned up and when you and again <laughs> if you're in an office and all you're seeing is these press releases you know maybe you can you can compartmentalize that or rationalize it but when you've walked by the jealous at SWD with a 40-pound backpack on and it's been hot and you realize this, you just know what that place is. And then you go, 9,000 gallons of wastewater was just spilled in the surface. Toxic, poisonous. And they contained it and cleaned it up with the surface How? is dirt. Yeah. How? The surface is dirt. They let it absorb. You know, and, and I know that when I took out my water bottle and I like a little bit dribbled off my chin, just, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, so you just, I don't know. I guess my point is like. And you know that guy and he let you stay in his field. Yeah. And yeah. he's the guy who's screwed. And it's, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I guess my point is like it, reconnecting to nature has given me on just a personal level, allowed me to regain a kind of common sense uh, authority over a kind of our modern technological uh, complex that just sort of tells us everything's this is how it all works and we're not really supposed to question that you know yeah. and, again, and and I would I haven't said this so I do want to make this clear the book isn't like I'm not some holier than that I'm like I'm fully in the industrial world I fly out to these places on jets I yeah. drive a little old pickup truck my house is heated with natural gas like you have solar too I do have a little solar but my point is like I'm not pretending that like I'm better than any of this. I'm saying I am of this. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so that, I'm sort of wrestling it. With well, it we from, were having a cool conversation about on the way over about um, um, the, the guy from MIT that did the study, right, right. Um, and, it, and it talked about you know the, well, how did you describe it? It was the um, so, so it's basically our, our our available horsepower in a way, yeah. right? But it's well, so so it's how, did you, how did you describe the power? So there would be constant power and oh, intermittent, intermittent, intermittent. I love that concept. Yeah, so, I, I want that. So this is you know, right. This is one of the sort of thematic foundations of the book too. That three hundred years ago, colonial family 
according to this, um, forgetting his first name, David Nye, I think it is, social historian, whatever, he wrote a book, wrote a book called Consuming Power. And it was basically a social history of our consumption over the last couple of centuries and like uses hard data of like how much, you know, coal did we burn and all this stuff. And he cites a study that said, okay, a colonial family, three or four kids, maybe a hired hand to help with the labor and an ox, I think, as I recall it, had three horsepower to produce all their survival. Required. Required three right. horsepower. Right, right. Required, but they could produce... Like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Kind of, their, their daily activity could generate, generate, could generate three horsepower. And uh, three horsepower at their disposal, essentially. They worked hard. to, And from that, they had to provide shelter, nourishment, warmth. The modern American family, the two-car garage and all this stuff, the studies is, you know, 100 times that, 300 horsepower, but depending on the size of the engines in your truck, you know, whatever. But yeah. the, the point being factor, huge factor more. We're completely separated from it. And I think, you know, as, as the book looks at sort of relative solutions to like the energy and climate crisis, right? The one thing that sort of our culture takes as a non-starter is this idea of intermittent power, right? Well, we can't have wind because, well, when it's not windy, well, how are we going to power the grid? can't use solar because well when it's not solar and so first of all on a technological solution one of the big things everybody's working on is battery storage so that yeah. that can solve it hopefully the practical thing but what i've sort of been struck is by, that a good footprint though making uh the, the literally the act of making the batteries i don't know anything about it i'm only I'm, yeah I'm i don't know but I, I do think on some level we're going to have those trade-offs to be made yeah. right but like we've already like we're gonna yeah well i'll answer that in a second yeah. but the the, the thing that I've realized about sort of our philosophical thing is we have completely as species become un, intolerant of any intermittency, right? Yeah. Like we need to, and, and as I said in the car on the way over, sure, if you're running a big major metropolitan hospital, you can't have all of a sudden the yeah, power mid-surgery mid surgery yeah. and all this stuff. So I'm not saying that, but I think that in our kind of what I would call our like quote unquote normal lives, right? We just we want the lights to turn on. We want to turn on. We want our refrigerator to be cold twenty four hours a day. We want, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, we want to be able to fire up the electronics. Da da da. And I'm just saying, wow, is it that revolutionary of a concept that we begin to, as a species, accept intermittency? First of all, as we know, many of the seven billion people live in intermittency, right? Yeah, like they, right, right, right? You know. Yeah. So I'm not, and I'm not romanticizing that. I think you know clearly you want to bring those people closer, right? But I, I, I just think. The modern industrial, something's got to give, man. And we got to move closer to the earth on an industrial scale. Not, just, I mean, all these little things people are doing, a lot of people think that's going to be a big piece of the answer. And it is. Every roof that has rooftop solar, everybody who composts, every you know, all, all these things are good. But the grid has to be powered by renewable non-carbon sources. And uh, so I feel, I mean, it's been kind of one of the cool things that I don't think I really appreciate when I started out. But, you know, when I went and walked through the Bakken oil field, the gas fields of Pennsylvania and New York and the Wyoming coal country, is I realized, wow, I'm actually kind of in the middle of a reckoning of an end times fossil fuel. Like it might take a century or two, mm-hmm. but some history book sometime is going to be written that in that history book, 2016, was part of the end of an era, yeah. right? And and so what? Either because we choose to move away from it and survive, or because we just 
and just burn ourselves yeah, yeah, yeah. into into yeah. you know consume ourselves into oblivion and they'll be like no but <laughs> that's funny we literally will consume ourselves by over consuming yeah yeah no we'll consume ourselves oh but anyway so that's been kind of interesting to think about uh being out in these places that i think a lot of people might see as as a source of life and i see them as just kind of like these dying um sick terrains you know what i mean that, that yeah. are sort of this uh and, I, and again i don't mean that judgmentally like i also then you know like second or third day walking north dakota i met some guys working on a well ryan back was he, the young man he was changing actually what he's doing is changing a um oh god what do you call it a uh like a casing on the on the drill pipe or on the well pipe so they'd stopped the well and they'd taken out. He's putting new ball bearings and grease in this case. Like a sleeve, yeah, like a sleeve on there. And he, he was like, "Dude, he's like, look, what are we gonna do? Give up our smartphones? Give up our big screens?" Mm-hmm. He's like, "It's petroleum is in everything. It's in your shoes. Yeah. If it, if it isn't in what you use, it carried it there or it moved you to it." Mm-hmm. He's like, "We need." He's like, "The hard reality is we just need this stuff." And so need is a subjective. No, no, and that's what I'm saying. And yeah. so, and so, I think that, and, and he's right. I mean, and he he was in his personal life. He's like, I think it's fucked up. He's like, I know we're, we're out of control. He was a really interesting guy, yeah. right? But he was just like, you know. So I guess all I'm saying is, that I acknowledge that I live in that world where, like, right now, even these little crappy mm-hmm. shoes I'm wearing, full of petroleum, right? Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, something's got to give. And I, I wonder, like, yeah, I don't know how much I would give up them personally, but, um, but I do think, no, but seriously, I think on an, we need to think, you know, we just need to think culturally of, of, of making sacrifice the solutions work on an industrial level. Yeah. These like, like, like for example, states like New Hampshire that, that have the potential for wind energy and people won't put it up because it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. We just got to fucking pave New Hampshire. I'm saying like, I don't think that would be good, but I think that's the trade-off we got to have. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be like windmills across every ridge in New Hampshire yeah. because we need that much energy yeah. and we can't get it from oil. You know, and, and right now I'm sure if someone, some scientists listening as well, that's not going to call it. No, but like that piece would, 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 would solve some piece of the energy, right. you know, solution. Yeah, I, I get frustrated with that, but that won't solve everything. It's like, yeah, but it's a step, you know, it's a, it's a step and it's a sacrifice and, and it's an effort versus, you know, just plowing forward status quo because status quo is not working. I do wonder, like... So while the solution might not be perfect. So I, I was on this panel um, last week. It was the Carsey School's fifth... Well, it, it was the reunion weekend for UNH. And so in the 50th reunion class was Marcy Carsey, who is the benefactor of the Carsey School, the founder. She was the producer of the Cosby Show and a bunch of mm-hmm. other big shows and has done very well financially. Mm-hmm. And basically has um, underwritten the Carsey School with these huge donations yeah. of you know, 20 million bucks, whatever. And so they had an event where a few panelists, I had to head a Carsey fellowship to work on this coal project. And so they had a few um, researchers, reporters, you know, I was in my case reporter talking about this. And I was looking, I was thinking, looking at the audience, you know, people who are 73, 74. 
and then I was thinking, okay, so like, what's the deal going to be 50 years from now? Like when today's college students are at their 50th anniversary, like, are we still going to be a fossil fuel driven? Is it going to be incremental? Is it going to be like those little mm. charts you see that like 32% of energy comes from renewable power instead of like yeah. 16, you know, or is there going to be, is, is, will all the projections been true that like Miami's underwater because they say within a century, like very credible. Yeah. Yeah. Is that all going to come true? Like, we're not that far away from kind of figuring out some interesting shit. Or is it going to be like Y2K? Like, it's just not going to have happened. Right. I know. I don't know. Who knows? But I think that these are interesting times we live in. <sighs> Volatile. But exciting. But exciting. Just don't grow up. Yeah. It's a trap. <laughs> don't grow up. It's a trap. I think that is it. All right, man. That's a wrap. Don't grow up. It's a trap. Yep. That's a wrap. Good one to end on. Love you, man. Love you too. That was awesome. This yeah. is this. This should be not only a podcast. This should be a way of life. Yeah, I agree. You like know? getting together and having a conversation. I mean, come on, like we've known each other for a few years now, and it's taken a podcast to get us to like hang out, have a couple of beers, yeah, yeah, yeah. talk about life, not stare at our phones. I should have interviewed you. Can I ask you any questions in this podcast? You can. Well, if you've done it in your other podcasts, then stop. But um, you were talking a little about your four tenants. Mm-hmm. Your four tenants was the word you used, right? Or four, uh, yeah, four... I've, I've been using tenants, and I've, I've also used pillars. Pillars. Yeah, yeah. pillars. So let me see if I can get it right. Exercise. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and let me just... So what does exercise mean? Like, how do you define exercise? Like, um, Well, I would define exercise as... Um, Uh, I mean, it's really, it could be a lot of things, obviously, you know, so exercise for me is, exercise for me is, I like to work out every day, I like to, um, I want to um, be stronger, I want to be healthy, be confident, Um, but exercise, because I have a desire to work hard sort of physically and I'm having trouble with this because people don't you know what I mean people don't have the desire to work hard and sort of put themselves into some some level of pain and discomfort um, for a goal and that's totally cool with me right you know what I mean so just so then just do what you need to do like just walk just you know just get off the couch But you find personal meaning and connection if you've physically strived yeah i mean i i do to be honest i do i would i would like to raise the bar for people i would like to say i'd like to i would like to get those people off the couch and just start with something with the goal of of working sort of hard and and you know and the reasons being because of what i've experienced so um i just think i've and what i've experienced for myself and what i've seen in people so i see a lot of uh confidence come you know, mm-hmm. if you work like you know, so you get on, you go on your bike for yeah. sixty miles, and you work your ass off, and you push hard, and you're going fast, and you, and if you ever sort of like, I'm, I'm not a competitive. I've lost all my competitive, right, I, right, right. but I still, you know, it's no, still fun to work hard. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. But it, and then so then you get off your bike, you take a shower, and you just feel good, right. and you so feel you go into strong. a meeting the next day, and you're just kind of like, yeah. Anyone else do that yesterday? Yeah, or you just feel, you know what I mean? You feel grounded. Yeah, you feel, and yeah. and I believe a lot of power comes from that. Right. So, 
So that's, that's kind of my spiel on exercise. So I think it, and, and the ultimate goal is to enable you to then go on and do good things. So let me ask you a question just because, you know, we live in an era when um, exercise is kind of a thing of an, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Like, again, go back to the colonial era of family. People probably didn't exercise. Yeah, we just worked. Yeah. They just worked. Yeah, yeah. You never stopped moving. Right. Would you sleep. rather live then? Because part of me would rather have, like, for a number of reasons. And again, well, I, I agree, yes, for a number of reasons, exactly. Yeah, yeah because you wouldn't they, have to, like, you know, put in your... being in a place where before you're your even eating your porridge, you've, yeah. you've, you've burned 400 calories right, of right, doing right. X, Y, and then, Z. But, but also what comes with that sort of lifestyle is, I mean, there are stressors, but there's a whole different level of stressors. Like, oh, of course, right. You know what I mean? Just survival so, stressors. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is kind of like... In a, in a weird way, like less throwing things in the dark. Is that a wolf? You know, yeah, just, yeah. No, but it's like yeah. So you just you just kind of like wake up and you know you don't have a boss to answer to. You don't have a, a debt collector to answer to. You don't have a car pit. You just have like I just got to feed myself and and to to just survive takes just moving all day. And that's that's sort of my concept of like retiring. Um, you know, we don't. If you retire, you just sort of stop. Right. And right, why right, would right. we ever want to stop? I never like, you know, I, I only want to do more and more. So in my right. theories, like in, in those days we're talking about, you never retired. If you were if retired, meant you're dead. Right. Because your job was to, to feed yourself, right. you and feed your stop. family. And, you'd stop. Yeah. Keep those basic necessities. And if yeah. you stopped, you'd die. So. It is true. That's my spiel on exercise. And then you got exercise Oh, yeah, I, I can remember this. Exercise, food, passion, mm-hmm. and compassion. Yes. I'll ask about one more of three in the interest of, you know, uh, selection. Passion. Passion is... Um, passion, well, I was going to say is around kids, but it really isn't. Um, because especially, it, uh, and I say that more like the more I age the more I respect passion as a, as a real thing, right, um, right. As, a, as a real uh, life driver, you know? So um, at raising kids, I just encourage passion. You know, I really uh, um, encourage my kids, support my kids, you know, uh, push my kids towards following their passions. I, I happen to have, and you do too, so I happen to have a couple of kids that have passions, which right, right. then sort of leads to direction. But I want them... I just, I'm a, I'm just a crazy firm believer in do not ignore your passions right? because it's, well, you, there's you, a lot yeah. of drivers of happiness, but I think passion is a big one. I think passion is a big driver. If you have no passion or if you're ignoring a passion because you want to pay your bills, that's the, what's the point? Right. What's the point? Of love? Well, no, and I got to say for your kids, you were talking about me and Julie and our kids and it's like you clearly lead by example. You know what I mean? Like here we are, like you, you, yeah. you value conversation, you value reflection. Right. You, do you know what I mean? Sort of contemplation about these things. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You're producing a podcast that is essentially about that. Right. Right. And I mean, that's just one small example of the things you do that the way your lifestyle, the way, you know, that, that I think, um, right. Like mirrors that for your kids. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And they are, they're they're the the older they get the more you see their chips off the old block you know like we're all very different and we all have our you know we all have our things and we all you know but uh but they're passionate um but i you know it's it's you know i'd say 
you know, get your kids to, 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 as a parent, recognize that they have a passion, like you just did with, you know, mm-hmm. with Luca, like recognize they have a passion and just do nothing but foster it. And then as an adult and as, you know, someone who just turned 51, like it just, it, it just, it's like uh, one of my pet peeves that to, to just see people give up as they age with everything, with like, their, shut down. with physically, with like exercising and like, oh, I'm just, I'm old now, so I can't, right. uh, you know, or I'm old now, so I can't pursue another dream. Right. Like that's right. just, it, I'm, I'm, I'm so big into like, we get one shot, we get right. one chance, one life. And, if, done, and what is the point of, of ignoring anything that kind of like, you know, uh, fuels you or any, any, like any fire inside. Why would you ignore that? You know, it's my passion. It's a good one to end on. Don't yeah, you think? I do. Keep it going. All right, brother. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was fun. Yeah. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, me too. And then hanging out in strawberry, fe- strawberry jam, strawberry jam, strawberry fields. Strawberry fields. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, brother. All right. That's fine. Till now. Till next time. <laughs>